fellow Estorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valariridus. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far. Also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination, also so far, of George's style, honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career, with the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows, and it brings POVs together like A Clash of Kings with the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, feel free to shoot us some live questions. Also, you can send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, like Facebook, Flick, Slack, or Discord. Check out the Isle of Faces podcast. Joe's been doing fantastic work over there, running tandem reread action on his Scraps and Scrolls show. Uh, Isle of Faces is the, is the official title. Scraps and Scrolls is the Valariridus tandem title. Check out Nina Friel on Tumblr. Good Queen Alley with one L. That's how I like to say it. I think that makes it a little bit more memorable. Yeah, she's got a lot of great takes over there, a lot of expanded ideas on things you'll hear here, as well as some things that you haven't heard over here. Uh, looks like we got a super chat from Dan Windsor. H. Dan is the Lord of H. Looking forward to what comes after Valaritas A Dance with Dragons, Dan says. And well, we've been working on how to proceed with that. We have our plan. We're getting together guests for the Winds of Winter chapters. And we have most of the guests lined up. We'll announce them once they are all set. But we've only got about two or three more to arrange out of, what is it, nine or ten? I forget. So we're pretty close to having that all set. So that's exciting. We'll hit the ground running with that. Probably just take a week or two off in between and then get right back to it. You, some of you might be aware that this particular Sunday, there's a yearly ritual of sports here in the USA. That's right. This episode is being recorded on, on Super sports Bowl. Sports Ball Day. Sports Ball Day. That's right. That's what it's called. Well, we have our own rituals to discuss today that have very little to do with sports. Or there, the Superb Owl. Or the Superb Owl. There might be a pigskin here and there, actually, uh, <laughs> now that you mention it. But... That's about all that we have in common with sports ball. <laughs> I don't use sports ball to be an insult. I don't think it's a funny word. Some people think that word is like demeaning. You think so? I've never. I've heard, heard that. Like the people think sports ball is like a way to make fun of sports. I just think it's just like a word people use when they don't know a lot about sports. Yeah, it's a word I use when I have no idea what sport could be being discussed. Yeah, it's just a catch all. <laughs> the sports ball. Catch it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay, anyway. Let's get to it. So the four chapters today, they all have the same thing in common, the ritual action, as the titles will reflect. Quick note, I did actually change two of the titles from last week. Don't usually do that, but I do occasionally. But this was worth it. I had a good idea, and I had to run with it. So let's let's go with it here. We have The Sacrifice, A Ritual in the Snow, a.k.a. The Trials and Travails of Theon, Tycho, and Christopher. Victorian, A Ritual in the Sea, a.k.a. A Thousand Screams and One. The Ugly Little Girl, A Ritual in the Shadow, a.k.a. A Thousand Faces and One. And finally, Cersei Two, A Ritual in the Street, a.k.a. The One with the Walk of Shame. Really should have done something about the sheets. <laughs> a Ritual in the Street, uh, A Lion in the Sheets. <laughs> <laughs> 
Every episode, I say that this book brings POVs together like a clash of kings. Most of that happens towards the end of the book. And well, that's where we are. They started on these paths earlier in the book, right? The paths that bring them eventually together, I mean, given that some of these characters have been traveling most or all of the time. In many cases, that's exactly what they're heading towards is these joinings. Victorian, who has certainly been traveling all book long, is about to be in the vicinity of Tyrion, who has also been traveling most of the book. Quentin is dead, but he certainly spent a good chunk of his book traveling too. He spent time in the arcs of Danny and Barristan. And of course, Victorian and Tyrion are not unlikely to as well. So there's a lot of POVs coming together at Slaver's Bay, Marine in particular, just as Danny left, right? <laughs> not long ago, Jamie and Brienne were reunited, and that involves a former POV and Lady Stoneheart. And here too in this episode, Asha and Theon are reunited. Arya, though, she'll have to wait a bit longer to reunite with anyone, but her chapter does see 11 faceless men brought together, and we can be pretty sure that is not a common occurrence to have that many brought together. As our homemade titles indicate, there are indeed some rituals today. Sticking with Arya, Eleven is the largest gathering of faceless men she's seen to date. Uh, serving them all at table down in a dark cellar, all of them disguised as the repeat ritualized phrases, or as they repeat ritualized phrases to decide who kills who. Stannis has three men burned to death. Victorian has seven women burned to death. Cersei walks naked through the streets of King's Landing and her, had her hair completely shorn as part of the process, a ritual of cleansing and rebirth and penance. As chapters near the end of the book, they have more action than most. All of it is violent, but none of it is battle, right? There's barely any fighting. Sure, the Iron Fleet captures some ships, but those ships don't really fight back, do they? They stand no chance. It's, it's not really fighting. There's enough shouting in Cersei's chapter to think of a battle, and she certainly comes out of it bloody, but the only weapons used are thrown food and words. Now, Arya cuts a purse, kicks a man's leg out from under him, spills coins everywhere, then runs off and causes a commotion. But the only death is through poison hours later. In fact, every chapter has shouting and screaming, the loud prayers to relore by the queen's men, the men being burned, of course, the women being burned also, the ironborn after Victorian speech, cheering uh, in, in expectation of their great success, the crowd jeering Cersei, the crowd yelling after the ugly little girl as she runs away, they're yelling, thief, thief. We have the intensity of the rituals themselves that serve as the center of the action, which are deeply engaging and thoroughly described as we'd expect. The face-off ritual, a real look behind the curtain moment, as well as behind the face, I guess. Cersei has a lot of time to think in between each painful step, too. Lots of memories. Sacrifice and overlapping, con overlapping concept is worth a mention for sure here as well. Clearly a chapter called The Sacrifice fits the bill, but it's not just the literal human sacrifice. It's also a continuation of a theme that's been part of Stannis' story since the beginning. The means justifying the ends and how much of oneself must be sacrificed to achieve those ends. And is it worth it? Hmm. Victorian not only sacrifices people in burnings and drownings and executions, but plans to sacrifice more to blow the horn. We're not yet sure what's up with his firearm, but that may, in the long run, prove to be a form of sacrifice he's not yet aware of himself. It's a constant refrain in the House of Black and White that those who serve the many-faced God must give everything of themselves. I'd say that pretty well qualifies as a form of sacrifice, full stop. And really, you don't have to look hard to find other examples in that place, after all. Sacrifice of wealth or one's life <laughs> is often a requirement to have prayers answered. With Cersei, the sacrifices of her power, obviously unwillingly, the mystique of her beauty and all her political gains are sacrificed to or for the faith who effectively gain the power that she loses. Cersei still has the power of her birth, though, which is substantial, and at the end of her chapter, she gains a completely new form of power, 
about eight feet tall in height, it stands. Denial is a theme today. Being in it, that is. Cersei is in denial about the price of her walk, though she realizes during what she's giving up. Asha's chapter shows denial in the form of completely undeserved confidence about an assault on Winter and Winterfell, and rituals to R'hllor led by a knight instead of, say, Melisandre or Makoro. Speaking of, Makoro, Victorian seems unaware of the danger growing up his arm and of just a Makoro in general, as it seems to everyone else. Obvious, but not to Victorian. He's, he has a way of missing the obvious sometimes. Not to mention his rather offbeat thoughts on Daenerys and the defenses of Marine. And what the Horn will do. He's a real champion of denial. Is Arya in denial about the nature of the Faceless Man or vice versa? Or both? That's an interesting question, too. Do they know what she is? Hmm. The supernatural is everywhere today as well, even if we look beyond the rituals, though clearly we don't have to, and they're a major element. This, too, is fitting since we're near the end of the book, right? Given that George tends to keep those elements on the fringes of the story, he reserves them for more climactic moments. Well, here we go. And, of course, the deeper we get into A Song of Ice and Fire, the more of them we get. Makoro makes several predictions that come true. He and Victorian set about to figuring out this quite clearly magical dragon horn. Mm. Of course, the seven have no apparent supernatural to them at all, but Cersei's chapter nevertheless ends with walking proof of necromancy in a new form. We've obviously seen it in other forms before, but it seems like a new type. And well, that's pretty darn supernatural. As incredible as the kyborg is, the room with the faces and the magic that allows them to be used, that's even more so, and way more creepy, too. It remains to be seen if the burnings of men did any good at the crafter's village. I'm skeptical. There's lots of talk of gods, though, and how they may or may not be interfering. And Asha can't help but see frozen blood when she looks at the heart tree's face. The priests all seem like, if not bad people, definitely dangerous. Godry the Giant Slayer takes the role of priest with Melisandre gone, or rather just not present, and he's not a decent man. Makoro and Victorian? Hmm, not so great either, even if the Dark Flame is actually on Danny's side. The High Sparrow and the Scepters are lovely people. What am I saying? Uh, sarcasm, that's what I'm saying. And I remain skeptical as ever that the kindly man is actually all kindly, you know? We have the naming and presenting and selecting of champions kind of in the same line here. Cersei, of course, gets the mountain while thinking on how Jamie can no longer fulfill that role. Makora puffs up Victorian as a representative of Relor, making him think that he's a champion, telling him that the glory that awaits him, even though glory probably means some form of death, Arya is selected to perform her first killing as a representative of the House of Black and White. It's a form of being a champion. And she's rewarded with a promotion afterwards. Stannis, already dubbed the ultimate champion of humanity by Melisandre quite a while back, gazes into the flames for answers while Asha resigns herself ruefully to Justin Massey as her champion, in her own words. And this is the last chapter for all of these characters, these four, though, of course, all of them are set to have more in The Winds of Winter. The punishment not fitting the crime is also a major theme today. Cersei has earned all sorts of reckoning for so many awful things, but what she's actually, like, legally walking for is consensual sex, not even in wedlock. That's it. In addition to the murders we've already mentioned, Victorian kills a man for laughing at him. That seems a bit extreme. He kills others for passing false news reports that they couldn't have known better on and tosses 20 boys sex slaves in the ocean after cutting their throats for the crime of making him a big, strong, hardened killer feel icky. 
At the House of Black and White, Arya learns that justice has nothing whatsoever to do with the killings performed by the faceless men. The deaths are given religious justification, like the gift, right? But Arya isn't entirely comfortable with that, is she? And while I can see the need to say no to cannibalism, I think burning them to death is a bit much for punishment. As support for this point, I offer the final point of this intro, which is another pattern that presents itself and fits well with ritual elements, is people who have seen a lot, seeing or experiencing something that they have a bit of trouble handling, like hardened killers or hardened, toughened people visibly discomforted or affected. Several of the examples come during the pursuit of justice, allegedly. And it's the example of torment and the others yet again, meaning when a man who never seems to lose his sense of humor gets serious, you better do the same. Similar example was given in Quentin's chapters. When Barrison the Bull tells you to run, you best run. Kevin is visibly angry at the end of Cersei's walk, and we can only assume that even a few of Victorian's crew dislike the burning of those girls because we have proof elsewhere with Ironborn on the other side of the world, meaning Asha, who makes herself watch and maybe wishes she hadn't, and even the she-bear Mormont loses her appetite after the events of the sacrifice. A Ritual in the Snow, a.k.a. The Trials and Travails of Theon, Tycho, and Christopher. A variation on our theme of prisoner POVs. This is more of the house arrest version instead of the prison cell version, but without the house. The snow is more than effective enough as a deterrent. As is pointed out several times, the idea of running away is just absurd. Uh, Asha details how desperately this is needed. Any sort of relief because... They've been at this village now two and a half weeks. They expected to be there on night. They expected the march to be a lot shorter. It is bad. The snow has not stopped in all that time. It just piles up, gets them colder, wetter, exhausting their supplies. Horse meat and fish starting to run low or is low. And of course, when the food runs low, well, the inevitable cannibalism. From there, we've got a clash of religion, culture, and through that lens, justice. And what is justice? This one asks a lot of questions, burning questions. Uh, we have a man who is said to be a, per a strict proponent of law, dealing with a situation that strongly suggests the suspension of norms is needed, yet some norms are so enduring that getting rid of them would be tough to digest. The first line is, On the village green, the queen's men built their pyre. The next line is, or should it be the village white, which scores Asha quite a few pun points around here. Nina writes, there's something dark about the idea of Queen's men erecting those huge poles on the village green. The village green often is the spot of the May Day celebration where you dance around poles. So this is pretty much the opposite implication, though. Instead of this happy dancing, the coming of spring, which is what May Day celebrates, so it is a seasonal aspect to it. They want spring or something spring-like, the end of snow. But instead of happy dancing around the pole, it's, it's screaming and awful spectacle. Of course, she says the thing about the village white because of all that snow, but there's some red catching her eye as well. The crofter's village stood between two lakes, the larger dotted with small wooded islands that punched up through the ice like the frozen fists of some drowned giant. From one such island rose a werewood, gnarled and ancient, its bowl and branches white as the surrounding snows. Eight days ago, Asha had walked out with Ali Mormont to have a look at its slitted red eyes, 
and bloody mouth. It is only sap, she told herself, the red sap that flows inside these werewoods. But her eyes were unconvinced. Seeing was believing, and what they saw was frozen blood. Notice the use of the word gnarled to describe the, the werewood, right? A week after John's dream woke him up with a gnarled hand where we theorized that was Bloodraven with the possibility of Bran as well because it's coming from the tree and the raven and all that. So watch out for similar language too in Arya's chapter, not with regards to gnarled trees or that, but with the faces. She looks at the faces in the face room and at first she thinks, oh, they must be masks. But then she's like, wait, no, those aren't masks. And it's a similar kind of thing where at first she's telling herself it's just a mask, whereas Asha here is telling herself, oh, it's just sap. Now, I don't know that it's actually supposed to be blood here, but we do know that symbolically, blood and werewoods are very much linked. And not just symbolically, right? We see them imbibe blood, for lack of a better word, drinking blood, trees, brand can taste it and all that. So human sacrifice to the trees. It's interesting, one of the arguments that happens here, the Northmen are arguing that it's the old gods that need to be made sacrifice to. They're the ones who need to be appeased. Whereas, of course, the Reloris are like, no, get out of here with that. Reloris, the fire god, he's the one that can melt snows. Come on. And, you know, they don't like come to blows over it, but maybe that this is foreshadowing for that. I do think that in general, the religious struggles in this scene are groundwork for larger religious struggles later. After all, this kind of suffering due to winter, we're going to see more of it. We're going to see it on a larger scale, right? So people are going to cry out to the gods for, for answers or for succor or for a sol- you know anything, a solution, desperation. Yeah, so that's why people are turning to cannibalism as well. It's the same thing. Desperation, you turn to extreme worshiping, you turn to extreme uh, means to survive. And if we recall, like I said, with werewoods and sacrifice, this is awful seeing people burned. But if we think back to apparently not that long ago, I mean, 100, 200, 300, 400 years back, probably more than 100, but it wasn't that long ago that human sacrifice to heart trees was semi-regular. And it's hinted that it still happens in the deeper, darker places of the North, maybe like Skagos or something like that, places that are not uh, well-traveled, places where news doesn't get out very easily, places where time still is a little slower and progress hasn't made it everywhere. Anyway, that kind of thing is, is still building. Uh, George introduced the concept of northern of northern human sacrifice not that long ago, and I do believe that we're going to see more of it, or at least more along those lines. Let's not forget that one of the first characters we ever saw, actually probably the first character we ever saw, really think about what it's like to watch someone burn was Jamie, right? Jamie saw uh, Lord Rickard burn and other people too because. You know, that's one he specifically thinks about, but Jamie saw Ares burn a lot of people, right? He thinks of a few others, I, I believe, as well, like Lord Chelstad, maybe. I forget some of the specific examples, but we know he had a thing there for a while, burning people to death. That was his method of execution. As for this sergeant who goads uh, Suggs, Clayton Suggs, into killing him early, it's a, definitely an interesting form of mental toughness. It's one of George showing us the different ways people are 
handling this difficulty and the way this is a different form of desperation, uh, toughness during desperation. I mean, the point of, of what he does is to avoid worse pain, but the younger men are so full of fear that they're effectively paralyzed by it, let alone the cold and hunger. So this is a, actually a m- moment of bravery by this guy. But perhaps there's a better word for it, but that's, that's where I land. If you were faced with that choice, everyone would choose his method of death rather than burning, like 100% of the time. So it's an incredible moment of presence of mind. Nasha certainly takes note. She says, the sergeant was the clever one. There's a pause before the lighting of the pyre. Stannis isn't present. He hasn't been seen for three days since the death of one of his squires to the cold. Now, a while back, we discussed how Melisandre may have saved Davos' son by asking for him to be kept kept at the wall. At the time, we brought up this example as evidence for that. Well, if one squire is going to die in the night to cold, then Davos' son is clearly at risk of, of the same. It was Brian Faring that were, who died. And Stannis was against burnings earlier in the campaign. So what changed? Why is he allowing them now? He, he's supposedly not a guy that changes his mind easily, right? Well, for one, we're seeing what awful people some of his men are. Not the ones who have joined him recently. I'm talking about men who have been around for a while. Godry the Giant Slayer, that's Brian Faring's cousin, seems to be kind of the leader around these parts, especially when it comes to the religious ceremonies. He's, he's sort of like second in command here. So it gives him a lot of sway. And it sounds like they've been pushing for a burning for a while. Stannis finally gave in. So he did bend after all. He bent before he broke for cannibals <laughs> or for cannibalism. Asha has told Sir Clayton Suggs like to hang out with the torturers and, quote, helped when they had work, especially if it was a woman. Asha's chapters, again, show a different look at Stannis' court and the people he surrounds himself with. Seeing it through a woman's eyes is very different. Some of these men, they're just jerks to other men. But when they're, when it's a woman, it's a lot worse. Instead of just being a jerk, calling them names, you know, demeaning each other, it's, it's like violent and, and aggressive and, and threatening in a much different way. It's not Stannis' fault these men are awful, but it takes a little, if not a lot, of the shine off the notion that he keeps control over his men's worst instincts. Right, he punishes rapists. We know that well. That's sort of a famous thing he does. But I would venture most of Stannis' worst men simply just do worse to avoid getting caught. Like, what happens in this chapter? Asha's like, wary of him doing that. And he's like, don't worry, I'm not going to rape you because if I did, I'd have to kill you. That's probably what happens so they don't get caught. It's, ugh. And he also says, I'd rather see you burn. Basically, it's the same thing Asha thinks about the cannibalism. She doesn't think for a minute that these were the first ones to eat dead people on this march. They're just the first to get caught. Or rather, if they're the first to get caught by Relora worshippers. It was alluded to that Deesbury knew his men were doing this. Well, he wasn't going to turn them in to get burned. But these tattletales, <laughs> the ones who wanted an excuse to burn someone, they're all about it. They wanted a scapegoat. That's what they've been hoping for. And of course, a cannibal is the perfect scapegoat because no one's going to stand up for that. No one's going to be like, don't burn the cannibals. Not even Stannis, right? Stannis wouldn't even stand up for them. It wasn't a gift for R'hllor. It was a gift to the cruel men in this company who enjoyed it. Like, Suggs was staring there afterwards, just like staring at the dead bodies like he was enjoying himself. What? And the people who were actually burned. I think that's the point here. Asha, there's a quote. Asha was surprised to see how ordinary they appeared. Not monsters, she realized. Only men. Joe writes, if this doesn't get across how bad the situation, nothing will. These men are being painted as monsters because they did a monstrous thing. But they're not monstrous people. They're desperate people. They're not like 
cannibals back home. It's not like they're going to be like, ooh, that was fun. Let's do that again. The point, I think, is that there's true monsters out there that these people being burned are nowhere near as the bad as the ones doing the burning. Suggs, Richard Horp, Godry the Giant Slayer. These are the monsters. I think that's the point. I think it's why Suggs is so over-the-top bad in this chapter to draw that distinction between him and the people who really were put to death. What they did was the thing that got punished, but Suggs is so clearly worse than those guys. Right? Is there any argument at all? (laughs) I discussed this with a lot of y'all on the various platforms. It's a variety of takes as to whether or not these men deserve to be put to death. But no one, not one person, and it's not surprising, thought they deserved to be burned to death. There's varying takes on some people thought they didn't deserve to be punished at all. Some people thought, okay, you can't allow cannibalism because then people will kill each other and eat each other. You got to draw the line somewhere. So they should be punished. But more of a simple putting to death. Not no, no reason to make them suffer. Heck, they've suffered enough. They're eating people. That implies suffering. Like you only do that because you've suffered a lot, right? Again, it's not because, yay, human flesh. So this fits really well into the whole pastiche of Stannis because it's a he's always been a man who believes the ends justify the means quite well. I mean, he used shadow babies. He was willing to burn Edric Storm. Don't forget, he only didn't do that because Davos stopped him. He wasn't talked out of it. He was forced out of it by the removal of his target. And he'll probably be willing to burn Shireen as we've been over before. I mean, again, it'll probably be really desperate. It won't be just bad weather like the TV show, but. But here we turn it around. Let's think, why does Stannis have men like Suggs around in the first place? Is he just really just a worse guy than we think? Well, maybe. Maybe Stannis is worse than you think. But maybe it's just that what choice does he have? He has to have the Suggses of the world to unleash on the Boltons. He can't just kill them all. It's even portrayed in the chapter quite directly. The, the value of a man like Suggs is demonstrated. We get a host of reasons to hate him, to loathe him, to think of him as evil, and to be confident that calling him that is deserved. To ponder what this man's life has been like, it's to imagine regular cruelty. You just don't really want to think about it. But if you do, you realize, okay, this guy isn't young. The things he's found pleasure in, he's probably done many times. And the things that he finds pleasure in are disturbing. But then at the end of this chapter, he puts himself in front of Asha and these riders who they think are attackers. Even knowing he's outnumbered, even knowing the danger, he does it. So it's, it's a moment of bravery. It's certainly not redemptive. He's not redeeming by any means, but it does remind us he has a use. When it comes to battle, someone has to go up the ladder first. Someone has to hold the ram going through the door. Someone has to face the arrows in the front lines. Might as well be this guy, right? <laughs> Think of the Night's Watch. The proverbial front lines of the realm's most dangerous and difficult border is staffed by ex-criminals, right? Some of the some really good people and some really bad people. But those bad people, they're finding a use for them. And, and, by, and through that use, they're less bad. It shames Stannis to have men like Suggs in this army, in his army, but Men are going to die to put Stannis on the throne, and it may as well be this guy. May as well be one of them, right? (laughs) And if Sir Clayton Suggs isn't on your side, he's on their side, doing those terrible things at you and your people. This is a song of ice and fire. This is war. It's never simple. So Asha again notes how ridiculous it would be for her to try to escape, right? She would freeze to death. That We touched on that briefly earlier. 
if Sir Clayton's taunts about Stannis burning her to death were a legitimate fear, she might actually risk it because, you know, freezing to death is better than burning. If she's captive and long enough, though, the thing this chapter might be setting up is that she could be our witness to the goings-on later in the Winds of Winter, again, meaning Shireen. She could be our witness to that. I think it's really just going to be either her or Melisandre. So those are our possibilities. Could be someone else, but I think those are the main choices. Kind of a neat moment, even though it's not fun. (laughs) Theon, seeing Theon described by Asha is like, wow, he really is gruesome. But she doesn't recognize him. And it's kind of a turnabout is fair play, right? When Theon met Asha again after so long uh, in his first chapter, when he gets back to the Iron Islands, he doesn't recognize her. (laughs) Of course, that was a lot funnier because of how she played it off. This time, hmm. So a couple of the other mentions. We have Arnulf Karstark, who we've been aware of his coming betrayal for a while. We see how cynical he is and how he uses the one of the main reasons the Northerners are even in this army in the first place, which is to rescue Ned's girl. So he brings that up. He's like, the Ned's girl. He like rallies them with that cry. And of course, he's got maesters, right? That's We discussed this back in Theon's chapter. That's how Roos gets word of what's happening is these maesters. And one great point, a couple of y'all pointed out that Arnolf says, do it for Rob Stark, you know, <laughs> the young wolf. And if we were, if we're on our, if you're on top of your game, you go, wait a minute, why would the car Starks be like, yay, Rob? That's the guy who, Rob's the one who killed Rickard. They hate the Starks. So at least they hate Rob. So that's a bit, that's a little clue that Arnolf is, uh, is lying. Plus, we have his vulture portrayal. Just the way he looks. He's very hateable. <laughs> he's really is. He's, 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 fl- he's circling the wreckage of Stannis. Uh, that's the vulture thing, I think. But he's wrong. He's wrong. So, yeah, Asha calls Massey her champion by way of thanks, maybe hinting at a, a potential future for those two. I don't know about that. But maybe. Certainly possible. While Ali Mormont says... It's not going to score him points with his own men to marry, you know, a Greyjoy. They're they're not they're not down with that. And you see kind of what she's talking about with so many of them being Reloris now. They really aren't. Yeah, it's not a good look. Here is some of the best Battle of Ice foreshadowing we get from a guy named Ned Woods. I know them lakes. You've been on them like maggots on a corpse. Hundreds of you cut so many holes in the ice. It's a bloody wonder more haven't fallen through. Out by the island, there's places look like a cheese the rat's been at. Yep. He says the key line being, it's a bloody wonder more haven't fallen through. Give it time, noseless Ned. Give it time. The turn to ice fishing also, Nina says, reminds her of Bran and Friends Beyond the Wall, their own desperate attempts to get to the three-eyed crow when their food runs out. Miro is catching fish in the icy rivers and then eventually ran out. And then they ate human meat. It's a very similar progression of, of desperation that's happening here. Like this, the things that they're struggling to eat, the things that are, they're managed to get by with. And then when that runs out, human. Of course, as we discussed at the time, they didn't know it was human. Interestingly, back to the matter of Brian Faring for a minute, good catch by Nina. She points out that Brian's father, as in the father of the squire who died here, is the one holding Storm's End in Stannis's name. That might be over with pretty soon, given that by Arianne 2, The Winds of Winter, which is one of the spoiler chapters, we're told Storm's End's been taken. 
Now, did this guy yield the castle through treachery? Uh, was he tricked by thinking the Golden Company had come for Stannis? Maybe. Maybe. But if not, then he's probably dead because we doubt he would have just been like, I yield to an enemy. Stannis wouldn't have left a, a softie behind to hold such an important spot with so few men. Uh, so we're getting to the pink letter next week and we're trying to think about some of the, the contents of it. Great thought here that we know that Stannis in Theon 1, The Winds of Winter, confronts Arnolf, 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 Arnolf Karstark. He confronts him about his betrayal saying, look, man, I know what, you, what you're doing. Uh, you guys are dead. The only question is whether I'm going to burn you or give you the easy death. So do, you know, help me out and it'll go easier on you. And given that we know about Arnolf having ravens, Stannis could definitely tell him to send a message of his design. And we also, in the pink letter here, that Stannis' sword has been captured. And we also, in the Theon one here, Stannis tell Justin Massey, you may hear that I'm dead. So put all that together, and you could have Arnolf Karstark delivering Stannis' Lightbringer sword to the Bolton, saying, look, Stannis is dead. Meanwhile, Stannis is holding Karl Stark's surviving sons and being like, you do this, tell them what I tell you to tell them, and I'll let one of your sons live. Something like that. That could explain a lot of Ramsay's confusion, which some of us think might be lies. It might actually, he might actually think it's true that Stannis was beaten. So pretty cool piecing that possibility together, thinking what Stannis might do. We know Stannis is tricky. We know he's got plans. It's going to be really fun to talk Theon 1 in the Winds of Winter when we get to that. 64 horses left, Justin Massey says. What the hell is that? 64? Why not 63? Dang it. <laughs> I was looking so hard for evidence that one more horse died. Like, surely there's another horse. No, no. They were eating a horse, but that was probably one of the ones that died already. Briefly remind us that, yes, these relore burnings are awful, but again, in the North, the things they did were pretty awful too. Think about all the references to the trees being called demons, right? That happens here because you're demon trees. Well, that, that same phrase is used in the world of ice and fire. In ancient times, there was a, an ironborn, a story about an ironborn priest who kill, cut down in a demon tree called Ig, which was a white, which is basically sounded like a heart tree. I mean, it's white and he has a weirwood staff made from it. So this, this demon tree aspect is not just because of the way they look, right? People think, oh, people are scared and superstitious of the trees because of their scary faces. But no, it's not just that. It's because of the sacrifices that people think the trees are eating them or that the trees are portrayed as eating flesh. And it's like, yeah, well, that's kind of spooky, right? Now, Tycho's appearance is so funny and strange. And I I'm reminded of a line in The Ugly Little Girl that's coming up shortly when uh, they give her a face that's really noticeable, something that they say, anyone who sees you is not going to soon forget, which is the point. The, the murderer looks like someone very distinct. They're not going to go accusing someone else that does, has a non-brutalized face because, well, how could that be possible? Now, of course, I don't, I'm not suggesting Tycho is a faceless man. Not at all. But he has this weird three-tiered hat and he looks he's tall and outlandish looking. And I think that might be part of it. He's really hard to forget. You, you're not going to forget what this guy looks like. You're not going to, he's going to leave an impression always. 
That's kind of interesting. Yeah, I was sorely missed by me and the show. In general, they just play everything down from how ludicrous some of it is described in the books and colorful and all that. Yeah. But I had such a clear picture of Tycho Nestoris. I really wanted to see, like, the snow on each level of the three-tiered hat, you know, and just... Hello, you know, with some give him some crazy accent. And- <laughs> that would have been so weird. It's it would have been. He showed up in this kind of grounded. <laughs> some people are wondering how he's going to get back home. If Melisandre is accurate about all the ships being gone, well, he lent his ships to John, and now they've sunk. So, oh, he'd probably just go to White Harbor. There's bound to be some ships there. But is it a chance that Stannis never actually gets this money because the the paperwork may not make it back there? Meg from Flick suggests that the riders coming right up on, out of the storm and just gutting right into the camp reminds of uh, Jamie at the Blackwood siege and to a lesser extent at the River Run siege where things have just gotten lax. They're not worried about enemies. Here, there's also the desperation is also playing a role and people just not wanting to be out in the snow. Guinevere Greenstones asks, why was Sugg so quick to, quick to slit that sergeant's throat? It, it, he barely insulted Suggs. He basically, all he said was, Suggs, you bleeding bastard. And then, bam, that was it. Like, that wasn't much of an insult <laughs> as far as these things go. Uh, Guinevere... Boom roasted. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're boom roasted. The suggestion from her, maybe the sergeant was about to accuse him of cannibalism. Like, maybe he knew something. And he's like, well, let's not let him talk. It's an interesting theory. You know, it's, it is, I did, it has always stuck out to me how quickly Suggs did that. He wanted to see Asha burn, yet he cut this guy's throat. Maybe he was worried about being implicated in something himself. The eating of charred horse meat is a parallel to Danny's end chapter. She's going to eat charred horse meat right next to her dragon when they kill a horse together. Well, really, the dragon kind of does all the work, but she kind of encourages him. And they, the, the important part is eating together, though. And maybe Bran has joined the feast as well. Great catch by Tree Girl pointing out that one of the ravens is sitting there eating the flesh of the burned bodies afterwards. And in the next chapter, which will be Theon one, that's the next time we see any of this stuff, the ravens will be speaking with, with apparently Bran's voice. Yeah, that's dark if Bran is eating burned flesh. Uh, kind of like these other characters. We've seen him eat flesh through summer lots of times, so it's not out of the ordinary at all. Nice uh, pun from Stefan B. says, big hello to the Isle of Faces from the Isle of Face. Because <laughs> we have a tree, one island with one tree with one face, so that's good. <laughs> also points out that the Iron Banker emerges from the snow guarded by Ironborn, so that's fitting. Six squid in the snow guarding him. So yeah, a little more about Tycho here. Whether or not he actually makes it home, it certainly is a boon for Stannis. He certainly feels like it's a huge shot in the arm. He feels like his, this, his chances have turned. Certainly not only has he gotten lots of money implied here, but it means that Cersei isn't getting that. That's a, a double whammy. No wonder his own morale improves. Like when we see him in the next chapter, it's a total turnaround. He's, he's like the Stannis of old, like quipping, planning, active, just dynamic. This is not the moody Stannis that we're seeing right now. So definitely this infusion of cash is huge. And I'm not sure how R'hllor can take credit for that one, but they'll probably try. They'll be like, yeah, R'hllor, um led Tycho Nestoris to the camp. And that's, praise R'hllor for the infusion of cash. 
something, something relore. They'll find a way to give him credit. They could say the beacon fire led him there, which that is partly true. The beacon fire was, they mentioned that. It was like, we were able to see that. It helped us find you, which is part of the setup for the Battle of Ice also. That's how they're going to get them to fall through the ice to lead them with the beacon. And I guess if you're going to say that's R'hllor, then you know it's kind of hard to argue that a beacon fire isn't R'hllor, to, at least to fire worshipers. You're not going to convince them otherwise. Guilty Undertaker, great take here as well. It's worth remembering that the Littles, or at least that one Little, knows that Bran's alive, right? And who knows who else he's told? Probably hasn't told a lot of people because he doesn't want that being discovered by the Boltons, who, you know, are around, and their eyes and ears are probably around as well. But I imagine he told people within his own family, a few of the other Littles, um, Morgan Little might know, Middle Little. Very interesting, something to file away under information that some of Stannis's men have that he may not have. We're ready to move on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Victorian one, a ritual in the sea, aka a thousand screams and one. Well paired with the others around it, of course, the ritual theme is really right on here. It's one of the better pieces of connective tissue between close chapters together. And it's funny how we did not plan these four chapters to be in one week. It just really worked out that way. Lucky us. Praise R'hllor. Hmm. It's a a clear escalation from the sacrifice chapter, though, because, well, more people are burned, more throats are cut. Although instead of religious conflict, it's religious synergy, but in, in a way that doesn't really work. I mean, it seems to work a little bit, but... There's a lot about Relorism and Worship of the Drowned God that directly contradict each other. Makoro gets at some of that in this chapter, but Victorian doesn't care about that. He's like, contradictions, that's a, human, that's a human issue. The gods themselves have it all worked out, I'm sure. This is a thousand screams in one is the sound of the dragon horn. That's the sound Victorian describes it as having. Plus, we have the screams of the girls, so it's some more... We get more coverage with this title, and we've used this phrase, thousand blank and one, so many times because... It's a great phrase that ties back to Bloodraven. It even ties back to the Hellhorn. As if you recall, we discussed the very strange seagull that was completely undisturbed by the sound of the Hellhorn, which is bizarre, right? Like that horn is incredibly intense. So we we theorized at the time that Bloodraven was watching the ceremony through that gull, and that's why it didn't move. Anyway, this is a progress chapter, too. Building up without resolving, getting ready for the next book to kick off with immediate action. We get more on Makoro, more on the Dragonhorn, more on his new arm, more on his plan of attack. Lots of stuff. It's pretty cool. With all the, with lots of killing, too, though, right? This, this chapter really reinforces the horror that Ironborn culture just casually inflicts on the world. They, they love doing it. It's not like, oh, we got to do this. There's no guilt. Right? It's, it's wild to think about that. There's no remorse. It makes him feel good. Theon did awful things, 
but he felt guilt later. Cersei even feels guilt for some of the awful things she's done. Victorian does seem to have some repressed guilt over like his wives or that last wife in particular. But most everyone else who isn't ironborn to him and even some who are, may as well be animals. As the language here in the first line suggests, that exact line of thinking, he and his, they're hunters. The sea was black and the moon was silver as the iron fleet swept down on the prey. The prey, right? That says it all. Nina has a great take here, a way that ironborn culture impacts the world around it. They capture a ship called Dove, one of the most blatant symbols of peace, the name Dove. Doves are released as signing of peace deals. They're part of Olympic games and marriages and all sorts of things. Now it's Shrike, turning a dove into a Shrike. A Shrike is about the nastiest bird one can imagine in terms of how it behaves. I mean, there's more, there's scarier birds out there. Shrikes are tiny. They're not threatening to humans at all. But Shrikes are nicknamed butcher birds. They're brutal, man. They grab insects and small lizards and impale them on spikes while they're still alive to store for later. And then like, eat little chunks off of them while they're still wriggling on the impaled thorns and stuff. They are brutal, man. Those are the metalist birds that exist. Oof, yeah, no wonder. So that is a really symbolic switching of aspects there. To go from dove to shrike is, oof. But also it's kind of a, a sign of Victorian's uh, poetic nature. I've collected a few poetic quotes at the end here. Joe writes, this is like a nature show. The Ironborn are like a pack wordlessly surrounding their prey, working together to bring it down. And that is how they're portrayed in the world of ice and fire as, as the wolves of the sea. You'll note George also paints a picture of the sea and the sky every time Victorian goes on the hunt. There's several of them in this chapter and the structure is the same almost every time. It's the repeated reminders of the sky, the, their prey, uh, and there's usually the, the number of ships is added in as well as part of the description. So there's a bit of a, bit of a pattern that George is giving us in this chapter, coming in threes. A lot of characters enjoy hunting. That's nothing new. But hunting people, that's Ramsey's stuff, right? But even Ramsey doesn't enjoy fighting. He enjoys hurting. He enjoys inflicting pain. He enjoys winning. He doesn't really want the challenge of someone fighting back. Running away, sure, that challenge he enjoys, but he doesn't want them, like, coming at him. <laughs> Victorian does. He enjoys, he would rather fight someone who's good at fighting than have it be easy. Jamie likes fighting, or at least he did, but I don't think he really liked killing. Brienne, somewhat ditto, enjoyed the Song of Steel. Iron Emmett, similar. Oberyn Martell, okay, maybe he enjoyed killing, but I don't think he took pleasure in targeting innocents. He didn't, you know, he wasn't a pirate. Sandor acts like he enjoys killing, but I think we're all skeptical of that. He definitely has guilt also. The Mountain, okay, that's someone who legitimately enjoys killing. I'm not sure he takes joy in it so much as he just desires it. He's nothing. That guy doesn't like anything. He's just, he's just a, he is a monster. Knighthood is a serious duty. Gregor isn't knightly, but he is a serious guy. He never laughs. Victorian doesn't laugh either. He doesn't trust laughter, but he does take pleasure in combat, which is such a strange thing. It's hard to imagine that. With the Ironborn, it's a cultural value to enjoy combat. These statements say a lot. Check this out. This was why he had been put on earth, to stand steel-clad with an axe red and dripping in his hand, dealing death with every blow. Now, that's not a line from this chapter, though you may have thought it was. 
It's actually from the Reaver chapter, Feast for Crows. But there's a similar one. That's why you might have thought it's from this chapter because of... He wondered if this was how his brother Aaron felt when the drowned god spoke to him. He could almost hear the god's voice welling up from the depths of the sea. You shall serve me well, my captain, the waves seemed to say. It was for this I made you. Yeah, so him feeling like an object of destiny, saying this is what I was born to do. But also note the progression. Like in the first quote, he's sort of subconsciously or, or alluding to the gods made him for this. But he's in the second quote, he basically hears the gods speaking to him. That's, that's definitely a little more intense, if not a lot more intense. He feels empowered by what's happening. He feels these successes are evidence of future successes. The gods are with him. It's two gods now, right? He's very pumped up by that. He's like, yeah. Kind of like how Stannis is pumped up by getting the money at the beginning of The Winds of Winter. Victorian is pumped up by these gods backing him up. Ironically, Stannis is the one who's being told he's the champion of Valor. Really, lots of things are working out for Victorian right now. His fleet's doing what it does best. His arm, he loves his new arm. It doesn't creep him out, as it probably should. But what does creep him out? Well, apparently the boy bed slaves and the sight of his brother naked and probably prayers to the storm god. But not much else, really. This guy, he's not rattled easily. But we can see there's a, a bit of a pattern there, a, n- a noteworthy pattern on what does. But his lack of fear, too, I think it might be his downfall is part of it. Roose Bolton says, fear keeps a man alive in this world. Victorian doesn't fear what's happening to his arm. He doesn't fear Makoro. He doesn't fear the dusky woman. He doesn't fear Marine. Laughter, though, he fears that. <laughs> he can't have laughter. See, his priorities are pretty mixed up here. He hates laughing, smiling, dancing, and love. A disturbing combination of traits to have. He's not a good man. But I do find him and his Cthulhu Viking culture fascinating, as I seem to say every time we have one of his chapters. A good time to mention the mention of Dagon Greyjoy, a historical figure in Victorian's ancestor, named, of course, from the Cthulhu mythos. He's mentioned a lot. It seems like every time we talk about Victorian, Dagon Greyjoy is brought up again, and we're not bringing him up out of the ordinary here. We're not just injecting him into this chapter. He's mentioned, Um, as well as in the history books. uh, In Feast for Crows, he was mentioned in Victorian's chapters. Uh, Duncan Egg, he's actually a contemporary. That's pretty cool. The line here is that Dagon beat the Starks and Lannisters, but couldn't beat the Targaryens, perhaps foreshadowing that the dragons will also be the downfall of the Greyjoys or Euron specifically. So I don't have anything new to say about Dagon. We've talked about him at length before, but it's definitely building to something, right? Whether he's meant to be portrayal of Euron or Victorian himself or a little of both, we'll have to wait and see. But it's clearly George is doing something there. You don't throw out a historical figure this many times and not have it be relevant. Joe notes, uh, keeping track of the geography, as he's wont to do, and we appreciate. They're now about to the northern part of the Isle of Cedars. Uh, there's a city, a ruined city on the top. You see the ruined pyramids. It's really cool looking. It really inspires great visuals there. Uh, be a really cool role-playing setting. A lot of George's off-the-beaten-path sites are, would be really cool for RPG settings. Also, another ship name thing, uh, the Giscari Dawn is the name of a ship that they capture. The captain repeats the is one of the ones who says that Daenerys is dead, according to the rumors, and he believes that. Of course, they know through Makoro that that's not true. It's this kind of symbolic, too. Or not really symbolic, just an indication of where Marine and, and Slaver's Bay thinks it is. Like, Danny's gone. They got rid of her. 
now it's the new era in Slaver's Bay with all this reset and renewal. But nope, not quite. Now, these Gestari captains, of course, Makoro comes in handy in many ways, one of which is being a translator. And that's why we get, how are we able to get these specific messages and these pieces of news? And Makoro's like, yeah, I saw the flames. I would know if she was dead. No worries there, my man. And they say the name of his DAC. There's a lot of that in these, these, these chapters. You have Ironwood calls them all Harzu because he can't pronounce the Miranese names. And here, in the last chapter, we had the Northerners calling it Red Ralu instead of Relor because it's just their mocking name there. And here, we have a similar thing where the Giscari, either it's the bad translation or they just get his name wrong. They call him his Dak instead of his Dar. Anyway. So Makoro's tr- being a translator is a, is a good segue into what he's doing. He's making himself useful. He's powerful, and he's giving that power to Victorian. It's really similar to what Melisandre did for Stannis. She, she came in, people were wary of him, or wary of her, both, same situation. Victorian's men are like, who is this guy? But he's not going to get rid of them. He's going to tolerate their dirty looks and their curses and their muttered prayers to the drowned god and all that because they're scared of this guy because he's just giving Victorian too much power. Recurring theme in the real world and in this story, who gives up power when when they're given it? It's really hard to give up power, whether it's political or otherwise. And usually that's the type of power we're talking about in the real world. But now there's supernatural power in play. And that's what Makoro brings to the table. Lots of it. And he's proving it. He's accurate with his flame readings multiple times. How are you going to have a guy who literally predicts the future and be like, nah, I have no use for that? Yeah, it's scary, but this guy's leading a, a fleet into foreign waters into a dangerous mission. He's not gonna, He can't give up that advantage. Of course, we know better. We know that he's almost certainly going to be Victorian's downfall because of who his, where his loyalties lie. But in the meantime, Victorian is just so enamored by what he gains from having Makoro at his side. He, it brings him what he thinks Euron has. It gives him, makes him a match for Euron. It, uh, he feels like he has the power of two gods. To him, that's enormous. If it were true, it would be, right? But <laughs> I'm not so sure it is. Think ahead, though. Melisandre Stannis. Okay, that's a pairing that we've discussed at length and we'll discuss more. Makoro, Dark Flame. That phrase is used in this chapter to remind us that's who he is, to connect him to Quaith's prophecies, although, of course, we've made that connection before, but this is where that actually happens in the text. Imagine Makoro's value to Daenerys, though. That's probably where we're going to end up, with Makoro at her side, not at Victorian's side. I don't know what's going to happen to Victorian in the meantime. Probably death. Maybe becoming, you know, like a thrall of Danny uh, through the firearm or something. But either way, it's not going to work out the way Victorian thinks. But back to Makoro. What's Makoro going to do for Danny? I'm just so interested in this possibility. Flame readings, accurate flame readings, telling her where her enemies might be, things like the kind of things he's doing for Victorian right now, but times 10 because Danny has so many more armies and enemies and things to look in the flames for, right? He's just ruling more people. 
Uh, it's so funny that Victorian thinks that giving Mikoro his robes is going to make people accept him. It's like, hello, picture that guy in black and gold Kraken robes with his flame face and his hugeness and his... <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work, man. That just makes him way more intimidating. But not if you're a Victorian. He's like, yeah, this... The Greyjoy, familiar sigil. No, Victorian, you forget that half the reason they follow you is because they're scared of you. Like, they're afraid of the Greyjoys. The Greyjoys aren't ruling the Iron Islands because they're the nicest people. They're like, because they're the best with money. No, it's because they're among the bloodiest houses and they emerged in this uh, land of of might makes right. <laughs> so, you know, just put all that together. His arm, he's also thinking about how, look how awesome my arm is now. It seems to be creeping up, right? Just like John Connington's arm, there's grayscale creeping up his arm. It seems like the burned part of his arm is increasing. Like it, it sounded like it was just his hands last chapter. Now it's all the way up his arm. Is it going to cover his whole body? He doesn't seem worried about that at all. This progress is like, oh, I don't care. This part of my arm is stronger. Is that going to make all of me stronger? Cool. Are you not thinking of the consequences? <laughs> no, clearly he's not. This guy is just drunk on all his gains. He's got the gods behind him. He's got the dusky woman. Ne let a, never mind that none of these people are actually loyal to him or like him, probably, including the gods. It's also just so cool, though, right? The arm itself. Like, what is up with it? It smokes and crackles when he makes a fist. Very similar description to Erea Targaryen, who we discussed at length in our Fire and Blood coverage, I think in more than one place, but certainly in the Fire and Blood Dragons episode. It's kind of an add-on to our prior Septon Barth coverage, um, which came out before Fire and Blood, before we got this stuff about Erea. And now to be clear, there's the same line, pork crackling. That's a very distinct description of, of her body compared to his arm. Now there's there were things moving inside her. There were fireworms in her. And I don't think that's happening here. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think of Makoro like summoned fireworms to take root inside Victorian. If he did, whoa, that's amazing. Really cool. But I kind of doubt that. I think it's more of a, some sort of transformation. I st still, we're just guessing though. It's just, whoa. Makoro speaks out about Victorian use calling the drowned god a god. He's like, he doesn't say the drowned god isn't real, though. He says it's a demon enthralled to the great other, which is an interesting portrayal. So he's not saying it isn't a real thing. He's saying it's some creepy undersea being that actually is a follower, is actually uh, held lesser power than the great other, whatever that is, the opposite to the red god. I wonder what, what would he say? I mean, he talks about the drowned god. What would he say about the storm god? Good question. Yeah, that's a great question. I wonder what he would say about that. Probably the same thing. Probably just another, another demon. Another yeah. being enthralled to the great other. Probably. Like yeah, I all... wonder if, is there anyone that he would say is, that's just another name for the great other. Could, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wonder about that. That's enthrall. a good Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if they just take all the other evil beings of the world and consider them and put them below the Great Other or if some of them are the Great Other. Yeah, I wonder if like the Lion of Night is synonymous with the Great Other. Yeah, that's that's a great example of one that I would kind of expect to be more synonymous. I bet or, they, yeah. Or the unnamed, you know, the, the... They probably have had a lot of time to think about it. I bet they have 
some some writings on this. Maybe we'll learn more about it. I bet we do. I bet we do. I mean, if Makara makes it to Danny, there's gonna she's gonna have questions, and he's gonna be telling her things, and we'll also get more from Melisandre. There's yeah, that's a great question. I, I hope we get answers on that. It's something that um kind of a gray area, shall we say? <laughs> Very curious about that. I really wonder where uh, this whole why George gave us this stuff with Erea and then sort of connected it to Victorian. Because uh, she just dies. I mean, it doesn't amount to anything for her other than it being hor- horrible and then soon after she dies. Maybe that's all that happens with Victorian. He dies. Uh, let's talk about the prediction here. Um, after all, Makoro tells him of this vision. I've seen your worth that the Relor's glory awaits you, you know, and, and Victorian is very pleased by this. But we know that a lot of times the glory of Relor is done through sacrifice. And, and death and dying for your God is this pretty standard zealot's view of the world as a good, as a way to gain glory. S- one thing's for sure. Makoro's vision slash version of the future glory for Victorian is not what Victorian thinks. Whether it's death, servitude, burned by dragon fire specifically, well, it would be very fitting for him to burn to death since... That's what, you know, he's been giving to other people as well as uh, what he's aiming for, et cetera. He, I, I kind of appreciate, actually, <laughs> the way he resolves the familiar age-old conundrum of which religion has it right? He doesn't pick one like many people of faith do, or he doesn't pick none like an agnostic or an atheist would, but by picking all of them, he's like, who are we humans to say that one God is real and one isn't? How would you know? It's actually a fairly rational way of looking at it. And he's like, well, how would you know better? We're just people. The, the gods live way up there or way down there. Like, what do we know? It's kind of a good point. <laughs> he doesn't put it into words very well. But resolving inherent contradictions between the gods by saying that those are human contradictions, those are, those are limitations of our own perspective, of our own sense organs. We, it looks like contradictions to us. That doesn't mean it is. The gods are beyond us. They operate in dimensions and modes of existence that we can't even comprehend. It's a pretty good take, actually. He's basically saying, hey, it just looks that way to us because we are limited. Yeah, yeah. He's also just doofy about it when he gives these seven girls up and burns them. He's like, they're going to be reborn in light, undefiled by mortal lust. Hello, they were trained as sex slaves. What do you think this training involved? Undefiled by mortal lust, as if that's a thing. But he's wrong, even with his internal consistency there. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, they'll either go into the drowned god's watery halls or to be reborn again into the light. Like, well, which is it? (laughs) Can they really both be true? I guess neither of them are, but but it's a it's very strange. It's more of this weirdness. It's it's not it's not a three tiered hat in the snow, but it's pretty weird. And and it, you get the sense that we don't really get well tapped into what the rest of Victorian's crew is thinking. But clearly, they're not cool with all this. They're happy with their successes, but this part creeps them out endlessly. It's like yay success, yay taking ships, but Makoro. I don't know about that. But but like Victorian, they're not good at thinking through all the consequences of their actions. They're just, yeah, get the next ship, get the next woman. You know, they're not really thinking, they don't, they're not, they're not made for thinking ahead too much. But interesting too about this ritual. It's different yet similar to what we saw last chapter, in that it's similar in that 
it's led by a non-priest. Like, Victorian doesn't seem to get any cues from Makoro at all. He just does this. He's like, seven girls, burn them, say a prayer, kiss them on the cheek. There's no guidance from Makoro at all implied. It's just Victorian just decides this is what to do, which is, that's kind of interesting. I mean, it's gruesome and brutal, but it's, it's also interesting in a weird way. I also wonder if he chose seven girls because of the seven gods. Like, he's giving a nod to yet another pantheon as well because he's just down for all the gods, as we've seen. Yeah, Makoro doesn't do anything. He just kind of stands there. He doesn't give a speech. He just watches. He's like, yeah, good job. That was burning people. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's what we do. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Amongst the girls, George gives us a, a more diversity, uh, showing us that the slave trade is really widespread. You have all seven of them look different. They're probably from different parts of the world. They're almost certainly from different parts of the world. One of them, a couple of y'all pointed out, she looks kind of like she's from Nath, even. And uh, it hopefully is just a coincidence, but it might actually have worked because the wind picks up right after this. And well, that's not going to exactly tell Victorian he's wrong about how this stuff works. It just seems to imply that it does work. A lot of y'all weighed in on this whole glory awaiting him. And there's widespread agreement. A lot of people think dragon, a dragon will burn him or just regular burning or lots of other. But why, pretty popular guess is that he's going to burn himself. And that'll be ironic given all the people that he's given to the flames. And he frees the slaves, yet not really. <laughs> he says, I've freed them. But then he forces them to work for him. It's, it's, this was kind of set up by his distinction which he makes a huge distinction between thrall and slave, even as why, when you break it down, there isn't that much difference. But to him, it's a huge difference because one is captured in battle and one is you breed them. Well, that's the big difference. But so to him, the, there is a big difference here by the same token. Uh, you are, the, their designation apparently means a lot to him. You're not thrall, you're not slaves, you're thralls. You row for the Iron Fleet. That's an honor in that. I'm like, okay. So he's missing the point. He's trying to be like Danny, who's the breaker of chains. He's trying to, as Nina puts it, ape his attempts to be like her. And aping is a pretty good way to put it because he, he's very awkward with it, very blunt with it, very uh, just going through the motions rather than understanding it. Of course, if he did understand it, he still wouldn't do it. He's not down with that. He is at least a little clever in trying to emulate her so that the rumors maybe spread that he's on her team because uh, that is what he wants her to think. A brief mention of the of his battle with Stannis off Fair Isle. Stannis was pretty young when that happened, and you might be thinking it's relevant to Victorian's history, and it is, but it's also relevant to teaching us that Stannis is really tricky. And we just had a chapter with Stannis in it where Stannis is desperate and where George is building up this subtle hint that Stannis has a plan. And well, we've pretty well explain what that plan is, but here we go with more supporting evidence for it by having Victorian ponder Stannis's trickery. Now we get this great dumb Victorian line about sailing across the Dothraki Sea, a line we saw elsewhere about people thinking about it as a, an actual sea. Hey, it's not a hard mistake to make. <laughs> Someone says Dothraki Sea, you never heard of it? It sounds like a body of water. <laughs> Definitely he's not as dumb as the guy that calls Victorian fool. And I love the line says he should not have said that. Like, yeah, he should not have said that, but I don't suppose it would have mattered. Victorian probably would have killed the guy anyway. But man, it just goes to show how powerful that arm is. He lifts him off 
with one arm and chokes him to death with one hand. A full-grown man. Whoa, that's some... That's like Darth Vader doing that in the beginning of Star Wars to that one rebel. Like, he's like, tell me where the... Uh, and he's choking him with one hand. But but you figure Vader's using the Force there, too. <laughs> McTaren's using the Relorse. Quick note on the poor, uh, hapless, perfumed boys. Uh, compare them to Satin. That's a, a similar... That's a similar, like, spot in life. They find themselves where people are grossed out by them for no good reason. Just, well, culture. And that's why we worry about Satin, because there's all this prejudice against him. Even though he's proven himself, these boys never got a chance, but uh, he has, and he's shown he's capable. I said at the beginning that there were some quotes I collected. Victorian, dumb as he is, has that poetic streak. Here's a couple of quick quotes and one long one. I'll start with the simple ones. Ashea will read the long one. On wings of song, I fly to you, Daenerys. Really? Victorian? <laughs> no man had need of candles when the sun awaited him. Really? Nice. <laughs> That's similar to a line used by Loris about Renly. Loris said, no mere candle can replace the sun. Like, yeah. <laughs> Give her a kiss for me in whatever hell you find her. Ah, nice. That's pretty good. The galleys he renamed Ghost and Shade, for I mean them to return and haunt these youngishmen. That's pretty good, man. And then... The way he describes the Hellhorn, also quite poetic. I like it. I like it. The sound it made, it burned somehow, as if my bones were on fire, searing my flesh from within. Those writings glowed red hot, then white hot, and painful to look upon. It seemed as if the sound would never end. It was like some long scream, a thousand screams, all melted into one. Yeah, a thousand screams in one. So there, that's where that quote came from. It so beautifully fits with the concept of a thousand eyes in one because the screams are merged into one awful sound. It's a terrifying description, even though this happened, you know, last book, just bringing it back and thinking about it and realizing that it's going to be blown again, most likely. And when we cover Victorian's one chapter in The Winds of Winter that we have so far, well, half a chapter, I guess, it's not the whole thing. We're going to discuss it in more detail because. That chapter really, uh, more than any other chapter, deals with the horn. So check out our Hellhorn episode for more on that. We cover it pretty thoroughly. A lot of the other rabbit holes that have to do with it, we delve into. We talk about the writing, about the ceremony, about maybe the acquisition of it, in addition to more theories as to what might happen with it. A great take from Guinevere Greenstone. She says, Victorian can give Makaro as many golden collars as he likes. It's literally written on the priest's face that he serves another master. Very good point. Another quote. Victorian could swear that the flames tattooed on his face were dancing too, twisting and bending, melting into one another, their colors changing with every turn of the priest's head. I wonder about that. That's, is that, is that a glamour? Is Victorian seeing evidence of, of some light magic on Makoro's face it would make sense. It would certainly account for this peculiar description because, like he says, it's it looks like it's moving. And is that same line melting into each other? Melted the screams melted into one, and we have the flames melting into one another. So pretty cool. Also, just quick mention, I, I, it's cool that there was a telescope, one of the items that they get from a Mirish galley or a galley that has Mirish stuff is this uh, telescope. And Victorian's like, I claim that treasure for myself. Like, yeah, I would too. That's cool, man. <laughs> I hope I, I hope he gets. I hope he uses it. I want to see him use that once, maybe right before the battle in uh, Winds of Winter. 
I didn't know those existed, but it makes sense that they would exist in Mir. Mir is famous for its glass. That's been well set up ahead of this. They're the ones who make stained glass and other things like that. So the Mirish glassworks are the best in the world, apparently. And this is one of the wonders that they are capable of producing. And before we move on, I would like to point out the Dornish Dame and Kulnitsky brought up Maester Lewin's uh, Mirish lens that he got from, from Lysa. Oh, yeah. He was studying the stars with it. That, yeah, I guess was. that's more of a telescope than a... Than, well, no, there's both telescopes. One would be for observing the stars and one is just for looking at a nautical yeah. telescope. Would yeah, you call that a spyglass instead yeah, of a telescope? Yeah, I think they are called spyglasses. Yeah, but similar technology. But that's a great call. I forgot about that. And that's actually... We do actually have a prior example of that. And in fact, that quote, the line where we see him looking through the tube, Maester Lewin, is evidence of the comet having come mm -hmm. before it's, it's visible to everybody else. Like, basically, um, Maester Lewin probably saw the comet well ahead of most everyone else. So that's cool. That's very cool. Um, I'm going to shout out our Patreon. We're rounding out the end of uh, Dance with Dragons, and we're in the doldrums here with um, the fandom. So many of you are deep involved constantly as much as we are but you know it is the we haven't had new content in a while as in actual new content i'm talking about our episodes of course i'm talking about like another book or a new tv show who knows when the book will be out it might be soonish it might be a while we'll definitely have a tv show but that's probably another year away when that happens we our support tends to drift off a little bit it's not surprising game of thrones isn't in the news as much some people aren't as involved as they used to be. So if you have the ability to and have thought about supporting us financially, now's a good time. We have things to give you in return. You can get access to our scripts and we have a lot of bonus episodes. We have an episode on Gagasos. We have an episode on a couple of specific chapters that were scripted. We have, what else do we have? We have other stuff. We have some uh, panels from cons that were never released. I'm spacing out on at least one big one that I'm not naming. But anyway, we have several bonus episodes. We have lots of good stuff. And soon, we're going to have... a. This is the first time I've announced this. We're going to have readings of the Winds of Winter chapters up for patrons only as in preparation, of, uh, in preparation for covering those chapters. So those chapters are out there for you to find and read. Some of them are on George's uh, website. But audio versions don't exist because they're not official. And we can't post them on our main feed because... I, I think there's copyright issues maybe, but we can post them to our Patreon. We can make them private. So it's a pretty good choice for us to do it that way. And we can have multiple voices. We're going to have multiple voices. Yeah, we'll have different people doing the voices and narrations depending on which character it is. So look out for that pretty soon. You know, we'll start dropping those within the next month or so. I got to get like my coconuts for the horses flopping. <laughs> I'll make a full radio play out of this. <laughs> flop, flop. That's the only fully sound I, I know how to make. And it is, again, as of today, it is Super Bowl Sunday, Superb Owl Sunday, which is February 7th. February 10th is the release of, of When Giants Roamed, our first Giants-related collaboration with Crow Food's Daughter, aka the Disputed Lands podcast. By the time you're hearing this, it may already be out. If not, you can join Patreon and get it now or see it when it drops on Wednesday for everyone. The Ugly Little Girl, a ritual in the shadow, a.k.a. a thousand faces in one. I had originally called it a face-off of ice and fire. 
I actually saw the movie Face Off in the theaters. Some of you may vaguely be aware of that movie. It's a John Woo film where Nicolas Cage and John Travolta switch faces and then play each other. It's, it was pretty silly. But I saw it in the theaters, like I said. So that also shows you how old I am or gives you an idea. Mm-hmm. Because it was so silly, it's memorable. Uh, but really, Arya doesn't switch faces with someone else. No, one, it's not like someone else wears Arya's face while she wears theirs. So yeah, a thousand faces in one also just fits so well with, with the way we do titles. Down below in the House of Black and White, this one is very far down below, way farther than she's ever been. More rituals, but escalating participation. The last two rituals were mostly observed. Aja had no agency at all. She watched. The only choice she really had was whether or not to watch. Like, close my eyes, walk away, or watch. Those were really, that's it. Those were her two choices. Victorian didn't participate in the ritual except to tell people what to do and to give the speech. His sailors did all the actual work. Here, it's kind of a reverse situation where she's the one given the job and she goes and does it. She's not the director. She doesn't make the decisions uh, to give the order. She only decides how it's done. She carries out the will of a particular God, according to men. And Nina writes, it's interesting to compare this chapter to the two preceding ones in terms of human sacrifice, because in The Sacrifice, the Queen's Men and the Northmen debate the merits of differing forms of human sacrifice, burning versus offering people to the heart tree. In Victorian 1, Victorian offers the slave girls by burning while allowing that the slaves might go down to the drowned God's watery halls or to R'hllor. Here, the faceless men are partaking in a form of human sacrifice. They're killing people because they believe it to be the will of their God. But they're not actually choosing the victims themselves. It's through the prayers of people who have the will to do so. But again, the will of the God is filtered through men. These men, quote. Eleven servants of the many-faced God gathered that night beneath the temple more than she had ever seen together at one time. And they are called priests, remember. The kindly man is called a priest. The waif is called a priest. These are religious leaders. It's a temple, as it says in that quote. Let's always keep that in mind. George conceals most of the dialogue among the lesbian faceless men, which is, eh, you kind of understand that, but it's like, damn it, I wish we could hear what they're saying. <laughs> but let's consider the few things that come out of this conversation, because she does hear a few things. For one thing, they're divvying up the kills. And the thing that apparently matters most, which we had learned before, but we really see highlighted here, is that they do not kill someone they know. This touches back on Arya catching a ship to Bravos, where they all are very adamant about learning her, they, that, her, that she learns their names. And now we see why. So this isn't something that the faceless man keep quiet. Apparently, it's fairly common knowledge, at least in Bravos, that faceless men do not kill people they know. I guess it's really, I guess it really pays to be popular in Bravos. <laughs> and speaking of, speaking of, maybe that's why Ari is given this task of killing the insurance broker, because maybe all 11 of these people know him. That would give them a bit of a conundrum. Like, well, how do we kill this guy? All of us know him. Got a very public presence. He sits in a soup shop you know, visibly doing business and he's like in his 50s. So he's been doing it for a while, it seems like. And right before this, there's a curious moment throughout the procession where Arya hears that most of the time they're speaking Bravosi, but then there's a minute where three of them speak heatedly in high Valyrian. 
I suspect that's to hear, to prevent Arya from understanding. They're arguing about her or about something to do with her. It might be giving her this mission. Is she really ready for it? Well, they argue, well, who else are we going to give it to? This is a good way to test her, et cetera. So I'm wondering, it really gives that vibe that they speak a different language to keep her from understanding. And then immediately the plague-faced, faceless man comes up and starts questioning her. And he, it's interesting what he already knows about her. Knowing that she's from Arya of House Stark, okay, he knows that. That's no big deal. That makes sense. But he knows about her lip biting. He knows about like some of her very intimate details about lingering aspects of her personality. Is this really what they just discussed? Does he know her already? One theory, if we didn't know that or suspect strongly that Jock and Agar is at the Citadel, then we would maybe be guessing that this guy is that. But probably not, since he probably can't be in two places at once. It also brings up a question of maybe some of these faceless men have been away and they didn't know who Arya was. This is their first time hearing about this new recruit because they've been off in a mission. Like, again, Jock and Agar is a good example. It appears that he's been away from the temple for a long time, over a year, easy. Uh, so he probably isn't aware of who the new recruits are. In the meantime, that's not doesn't seem like important information to pass back and forth from one continent to another. Uh, all that he's concerned about is his current mission or missions, one would think. So they'd surely go long periods of time away from the temple. And, well, I wonder, that begs another question. Well, whoever Jock and Agar is serving or employed for or answering the prayers for in Westeros, how did this get arranged in the first place? Did someone in Westeros go all the way to Bravos to offer their prayers for a target in Westeros? Maybe. I'm just, I'm wondering about the logistics behind this and, and how these contracts, these hits get taken out. Yeah, so I have a suspicion about what, what happens in this scene. I think it's really interesting, worth considering, worth further thought, uh, the way this all breaks down. So I think, it, I think the main two possibilities, sort of to recap, is that one, they're arguing about whether or not she's ready and they need someone to do this job, though. They don't have a good option. But, but why not the other acolyte in the room? There's someone who's a higher rate rating than, or ranking than her that's serving the wine. She's serving the water, and then there's a person who's already wearing the black and white robe serving the wine. And we know that's a higher rank because Arya is told she's now an acolyte and given that very same robe at the end of this chapter after she completes her mission. So again, it's peculiar that she is chosen, and I think I suspect that's what the argument was about. But again, we see this same tactic of reverse psychology. Plague-faced guy, again, since he knows who she is, uh, he uses the same things like, you're not worthy to be one of us. You're too soft, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, I can be this. I can be strong. It's a, it's a re- constant refrain as part of their training. We get this, that kind of funny line where she says, I can be more humble than any of them. <laughs> That's really good. It adds a little humor to this, but it reminds us that she's a child and that they're using these reverse psychology on someone that doesn't understand what reverse psychology is. And it's, it seems a bit manipulative, if not a lot manipulative. And we're reminded that a lot of these things, these are basic tactics that an adult would recognize that a child would not because of lack of experience. So very, very sketchy there, I wonder. Mm, so also there's another tactic they use regularly with her is they let her assume what she wants. Here's two, there's a couple of examples. One of them is with the insurance salesman. He says, it's one thing to write an insurance contract. It's another thing to actually pay it. 
So he's implying that that's why this guy is being killed, is that he didn't pay out someone's insurance that he was supposed to. And so now they're having him killed over that. He doesn't say that, though. He just implies that is a reason someone would want to get back at such a man. He doesn't actually say that's what happened. Arya assumes that's what happened based on him being let on like that. Maybe that is what happened. But if we're, again, suspicious of who this guy is, if we're thinking there's a connection to the Iron Bank, it's awfully suspicious to me that as we're wondering about the connection between the Iron Bank and the Faceless Men, we have a, a killing in the insurance is industry. Like, that is a adjacent business to banking and finance and all this other stuff. He could be a business enemy to someone else, like a, someone he's in competition with, right? It might have nothing to do with the leading on reason that the kindly man gives Arya that she fills in the blanks with. Also, who pays out all his contracts now? He's dead. Does I doubt his business just died with him, but it might have. Who makes good on all the insurance contracts he's taken out? Does those, did those die with him? If so, that certainly adds to my cautious theory that this is a business-related killing and not a religiously motivated or a revenge killing. It's a profit-motivated killing, quite possibly. Yeah? So something to consider, something to consider. And that would also explain why they know this guy. If this guy's been a well-known member of the financial sector for a long time in Bravos, yeah, they would need a third party. And well, Ari is their ticket to that. What I'm saying here is, and pun intended, don't take things at face value in the House of Black and White. Yeah. There's another piece of comedy here when they're telling her who to kill. It's a great quote. She says, What man? No one that you know. I don't know a lot of people. He is one of them. So good. (laughs) So yeah, so for her, but Arya, as she's doing it, she can't seem to justify just doing it. She tries to motivate herself by thinking of this guy being bad, or thinking, oh, he's lived so long and my father hasn't even lived that long. And then she corrects herself because she's like, wait, my father. No, that's, that's someone else's father. That's, she's thinking of Ned, of course, but she's like, I'm not Arya anymore. And then, of course, there's also this quote from Plagueface that's asking, why do you want to be with us? And she says, to serve, to learn, to change my face. And that last line is kind of a giveaway that really she wants the power. She wants revenge and all those things. And Plagueface suspects it. And that's part of why I think they... He's discouraging her, but also part of the the mystery here in terms of, do they know what she is? More on that in a minute. Arya bites her lip a few times, which it's a great way to remind us that she's still Arya. I have this headcanon that through a different character's POV, we're going to have someone take note of a guard or a person that's just a random person who's biting their lip, and that's going to be our clue that it's Arya in disguise through another POV. And that'll be a really neat. George has set it up pretty well. Like, unless we see, like, another way we could see, we could notice this is by seeing her sword. Like, if we see needle on some random person, be like, ah, that's Arya. But the lip biting, I think, or maybe it'll be both. Maybe we have a person with a small sword biting their lip, and it's like, ah, Arya. (laughs) So that's pretty cool. Again, they really, really try to push full sacrifice that she's not Arya anymore. They really want her to not be Arya. And here's that quote. The price is you. The price is all you have and all you ever hope to have. 
We took your eyes and gave them back. Next, we will take your ears and you will walk in silence. You will give us your legs and crawl. You will be no one's daughter, no one's wife, no one's mother. Your name will be a lie and the very face you wear will not be your own. Yeah. Again, we quoted that one before. It's a seminal explanation of what the faceless men are all about. Really giving up your identity is giving up yourself. It's not death, but it's similar. You know, you're not who you are anymore. Very ominous behind all this. It just seems real creepy. You know, these aren't aren't good guys, y'all. 54 steps from the sanctum down to the third level. Okay, again, I'm going to complain that it's not 63, but at least it's not close to 63. Still, think about how many steps that is. Okay, she's already on the third level of down below. So that's already way down. Go like, do you live on, if you have two stories or three stories in your house, count the stairs from one level to another. I did. From, my, from this room going up to our uh, other floor, it's 13 steps. Going down to our basement, it's 13 steps. First of all, that's a little creepy that it's 13. But 54 is the number of steps down from the sanctum to the, down to the sanctum from the third level. 54. That's like four times more. So just imagine a staircase that long and be like, wow, this is really, really deep. Joe writes, George does not miss on the chance to create some atmospheric horror. We go past a still black pool, silent gods, no one's talking, only you have footsteps, this solemn, creepy vibe. Even the iron door doesn't make a sound when it's open. Like, that's creepy. Why doesn't it make any sound at all? Big iron door and it's just completely silent. Something's wrong with that. Well oiled. (laughs) It is say well oiled, but man, how much oil does it take to make no sound? Like, ooh, that is something else. Then oh, by the way, I just have to say a bunch of people in the chat are chiming in about how they, all their stairs are 13. That they think it must be building code, John Hagee <laughs> said. But yeah, Nina's like, I think I'm 13. John Hagee, I'm 13. <laughs> yeah, see y'all? 13 <laughs> steps. <laughs> the step builders of the world are out to get us. They're a superstitious lot. And of course, besides the steps, there's also like twisty caverns. There's this quote, black wormholes twisting through the heart of the great rock. It's kind of, uh, Joe suggests this might be an ode to how the faceless man began deep in the mines of Valyria with wormholes there. Of course, this is worm with an O. Those were worm with a Y. Similar idea, the same sound. And here, of course, Bravos is surrounded by canals. And she, at one point, she thinks we're below the canals. For one thing, that probably tells us that these caverns were formed by water in the first place, quite possibly. But yeah, it is absolutely callback to Valyria where the guild began. Good catch by Joe. We, we pointed out all the similarities to how House of Black and White is becoming the thing that it stood against initially. Like, they're slowly becoming a micro version of Valyria over time. The thing that they killed, but, the, but they were born from. Evil begets evil. They were good at first, but uh, I'm very skeptical about that now. So, the room, though. The actual room with the faces the skulls. It's like, what? This is not what we expected, I don't think. I mean, we've seen it before, but we got brand vibes, right? Just like brand going deep, deep into the earth. We got Arya going deep, deep into the earth. Just like the cave of the three-eyed raven being filled with skulls, same goes here. Just like ravens looking down on brand there, we've got faces looking down on Arya here. Places built by death. Of course, the skulls were just scattered around in the Bran Cave here. There's 
pillars. There's columns of skulls. What? This is not, they didn't just casually build those. We're like, yeah, we're out of building material. Let's use skulls. You don't make columns out of skulls with a pretty specific intent <laughs> or specific mindset, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, so this is so when Arya was dressing the dead, all those times where she was preparing the dead bodies, this is where they went, and this is what happened to their flesh, at least some of it, right? The, we see where the faces go, and we see where the skulls go. I don't know about the rest of the body. Hopefully, that's not you know they don't eat it, but we did consider that possibility briefly. Uh, and some of the details I want to make sure y'all caught. There's baby faces amongst these. What? Why? Why? Why do they have baby faces? Who's going to put a baby face on and act like a baby? I don't think that works. You can't... There's like laws of conservation of mass. I don't think they go from... Melisandre can't make herself look 12 feet tall. Or three feet tall. I, I think that glamours have a limitation. We've we've definitely been told they have a limitation, so I don't get it. <laughs> it's so creepy. Give yourself the baby face, you know, and then walk around with an adult's body. Yeah. That's creepier. Well, make sure you give yourself the baby face, and then like they go to the cradle to like get the baby and all they see is the face. <laughs> and then they try to lift it and it's like, Boy, you are a large baby. You are an adult. You have hairy legs. Wah! <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah, come on, y'all. This is so creepy. Nina says there's something distinctly other e, meaning the others, about this ex- about the sequence. The others' army is made up of dead bodies that they have seized expressly to further their own ends, destroying anything we think of as life. Whether or not the people those face whose faces are here knew they were coming to the house of black and white to commit suicide. Well, there's definitely problems with consent here. You know, can you imagine, like, like in the real world, if you want to donate your body afterwards? After you die, you uh, they need they need your signature for that. <laughs> they can't just be like, let's take their body and do what we will. Nah, you still have rights even after you die in our world. Well, in in not every country, I suppose, but most countries, as far as I'm aware, you have some rights to your body or your family does at least. If you knew your face was going to be used in reanimating or to go commit murders, you might be like, no, <laughs> I do not consent. To my likeness being used. <laughs> like, that's the thing too, right? You have to consent to your likeness being used on television. It's not quite television, I guess, but certainly is using your likeness. That's that, that concept here is turned up to 11. Uh, and Nina also writes, this is another symbolic sort of thematic evidence why Arya is just not going to fit in with all this. First of all, it's just creepy and weird in a bad way. And that alone is enough reason to suggest Arya, who is very stubborn about her goodness is going to turn on all this when she's understands it better. Also, it's so Boltonish, right? She's a Stark and a, ha- a room with flayed faces decorated with skulls and bones reminds us of the damn Dreadfort, doesn't it? Like if, if you were to pick any castle in, in the whole world of A Song of Ice and Fire that reminds you of this, you would, I think, absolutely pick the Dreadfort. I can't think of even another one that's even close. A little more on that in a minute, too, but let's talk about the actual operation for a second. He says, pain is the price of power. No big deal to Arya. She's suffered plenty pain. She's gotten used to. Pain is the price of power for Victorian as well. That's a recurring theme, I suppose. Here's a great quote that also has a parallel elsewhere. By rights, the metal should have been cold against her flesh, but it felt warm instead. She could feel the blood washing down her face, a rippling red curtain falling across her brow and cheeks and chin. 
Now, the person that has a similar line is Cersei. We'll see that in the next chapter. So keep, keep your eye out for that. Cersei 2, when the metal is cold against her flesh. Nightmares 2. That's another really awesome detail uh, George has given us to how this magic works is that, and it resonates with what he's done before, that there's aspects of this ugly little girl's personality are still contained within the flesh. Similar to memories being contained in the Werewood Network or what Melisandre says about objects acquiring the seeming of their owner, like she mentions the finger bones or a hank of hair or things like that. That is a concept George has used in prior writings of his, in his novel, Dying of the Light, and in all of his Thousand Worlds novels, there's a technology called a whisper jewel, which is an psychic imprint. You can imprint like a message or a piece of your personality that you can give to someone else and they will like, they'll feel that from like, they'll feel your emotions that is generated from it. So George likes this idea of human emotion, human personality being slightly captured within objects. Here, it's just that the concept is just dialed up because it's the actual flesh. It's the actual person that it used to be that's maintaining this. But like I said, though, it's really well set up elsewhere. This is not entirely new. And at the end of the chapter, as she's done many times, the kindly man asks, who are you, child? And she answers, no one. Sometimes when he asks her that, she says that, and he says, you lie. But not always. There's been plenty of times where he doesn't bother to answer. But this is the first time where you feel like the absence of you lie is evidence that she's progressed. Of course, the bigger evidence there is that they give her the acolyte robe and tell her she's been promoted, basically. So (laughs) it's not subtle. It's flat out said. A couple other random quotes here. One thing they say is, you know, even the good have to be killed sometimes because otherwise the good would live forever. That's a pretty creepy way to say, yeah, we kill good people sometimes. We don't care if, if, if the contract says kill the person. We don't care what kind of person they are. It doesn't matter. Yeah, see, that's the kind of thing, Arya, if she were to think about more, she would really be against. And I think that might be, there's a lot of ways we can imagine Arya coming to a head with the faceless man, the thing that having the straw that broke the camel's back, the final straw for her, whatever it's going to be, whether it's just going to be one big thing or a bunch of little things that finally has her say, no, enough. One possibility is her being sent to kill someone. Maybe she lies about knowing them. That's one idea I have that could work. She, She lies about some of these other things or omits, rather lies through omission. This would be a straight lie, though, because she has to say, I do not know this person. And well, if she's mastered the lying game, she can do it. But, of course, they will have some idea of who she knows and doesn't know. And that's a good question. We've been operating under the assumption that she does, that they don't know about her skin-changing ability, but we should consider that they do, and that they're just not letting her know that they know. After all, they know she's Arya. They know she's Arya of House Stark. That's for sure. And... Stark's having skin-changing abilities. That's not something that is a big secret. I mean, Rob's the news of Rob leading his direwolf around is very well known. Uh, John's direwolf news of that could reach some people. Who knows what they know? Uh, the information's out there. They might figure it out or know. And it might be something they're specifically after. We've talked about all these power games, different power structures trying to add more power. Well, if the Faceless Men had Arya's power, 
they'd be so much more greater than they are. I don't know how they could possibly acquire it from her, but if they could make her one of them and she does their bidding, well, she's the ultimate assassin. She could be way better than any of them because she has this ability, this potent skill that we can already tell, we can already see how it would help her be an assassin, seeing in darkness, spying through an animal's eyes. Like the, the applications are enormous. Whether or not they know about it or not is the open question, but it's a certainty that it makes her a greater potential amidst their ranks. So I think that's pretty cool. Brusco and Brea uh, are surprised to see her. Remember, she was really happy living with them. It was one of the happiest times in her life. A very simple day-to-day life, no suffering, no struggle, just work, right? Which to her, that's a massive improvement on, on where she'd been. Here's a random quote, too. Uh, the Red Bull's steps were empty. The brother gods Simosh and Soloso dreamed in twin temples on opposite sides of the Black Canal, linked by a star carved stone bridge. A starved cone bridge, I almost said. <laughs> the brother gods Simosh and Soloso are bird gods. And yeah, they're pretty creepy because they're birds. But it's another example of red and black and another example of sacrifice. Every 13 days, a white calf is sacrificed. On the uh, to Aquion, the Red Bull. And we have black and red, the Red Bull with the Black Canal. Uh, Joe takes note of the Weirwood Ebony chairs that the f- 11 faceless men are sitting on while they're talking about their whatever they're talking about. And Nina points out they're kind of like imperfect heart trees. They have the right color base, but the wrong color face, or the wrong color base, but the right color face, depending on which half is white and black. We're not really sure. It's a reflection on how Arya doesn't fit there. The House of Black and White seems like a place she should be, but it's a place where she can learn to kill her enemies. Uh, but Because it's a place she can learn to kill her enemies, but it's not, in fact, where she should be. The Faceless Men not only won't help her kill the people on her list, but they actually just actively discourage her from it. You're not supposed to kill people you don't know. So these chairs are kind of reminiscent of heart trees in a sense, but they're not. This can't be there. The faces, they're not the real faces that we're seeing. It's interesting, too, that it's, it's briefly touched on the plague man refers to her as a cat. That's one of the clues that maybe they do know who she really is. But then he's just, maybe he's just talking about cat of the canals. That's what he seems to be talking about. So again, do they know? Do they know? Another great point from Nina here also about this, the, the house of black and white. Black and white. Concepts of black and white. Consider that as a moral concept. And black and white means things are straightforward. To them, they are straightforward. They make things simple by simply not participating in some of the standard considerations that a normal human would have. Like, I won't kill a good person. They're like, oh, we don't think about that. Good, bad, doesn't matter. They just, they make it simple by removing things that probably shouldn't be removed from the equation. The stark colors, yeah, white, but gray. The direwolf is gray. Song of Ice and Fire is a story about gray characters. Arya is gray. She has gray eyes. The Starks have gray eyes. Symbolically, she fits in with that. Things aren't simple. And in her mind, we see that reflected. She's like, you should have killed the father, not the daughter. And they're like, well, the daughter prayed, gave up her life to have him. You know, she asked for the gift for herself. And we get another example Again, of the kindly man kind of dodging the question, but saying it in a way that allows Arya to fill in the blanks that might, in a way that might not be the truth. With this example, for, uh, is what I mean. She has the gift for herself, not for her father. And he's like, you should have killed him. And, and he says, 
death came for him in the end, as it does for everyone. He could basically just be saying, oh yeah, he eventually died of old age. I mean, he died. That's all he's saying. He's not saying we did it. He's not saying anything about intent. He's just saying, yeah, that guy died. So it's, he's allowing Ari to think that they did the thing that she thinks they should have done. But he doesn't say that. And I suspect they didn't touch him at all. <laughs> I suspect that crappy daughter-beating man, they ignored him entirely. Maybe someone else killed him, but they had nothing to do with it. Also, by the way, just noting how we get more information on glamours. We touch on that briefly. Like Some people are very skilled at seeing through them. And apparently not just people. And apparently not just glamours. Because the seal seems to recognize Arya even with the false face on. Not a glamour he doesn't see through, right? If, if the seal had seen through a glamour, they'd be like, okay, well, animals aren't fooled by certain things that humans' attention can be distracted by. That I can kind of get intuitively. But this is seeing through what we were just told is real magic. I don't know what to make of that except that it maybe there's a, it, it only fools humans. Maybe it's only designed to feel, fool higher brain functions. I don't know if we're trying to really open the hood up on how this magic works. We probably won't get anywhere, but it's very peculiar and worth mentioning. But it's, it's another connection to the whole concept of wargs, I think, and, and the animal-human connection that maybe isn't su- entirely supernatural, or at least it's the, the natural side from the animal's perspective. Constantina Lebensis says, Jockin again, really fishy for a faceless man as he definitely killed men he knew of at Harrenhal. Also a very good point. Yeah, Jockin just doing all sorts of things that we have now since been told aren't okay. See, my question here is that, you know, he killed people he knew at Harrenhal, but they aren't people he really knew. They're people he recently knew. Yeah, what does no mean? Yeah, what does no mean? Like just he, know he knows of them? them? In his capacity as a faceless man on a mission... He doesn't know them in his capacity as like who he used to be. Yeah. What does it mean? Per like, what does that mean? It's a good point. Is it you have to like know them, know them, like having met them once? Does that count? Yeah. Unclear. What level of separation do they require? It's a good question. We need. We could maybe stand Guilty to have a little more detail. Said their idea. Um. In in terms of their reply to that was either Jakin was a heretic or he was purposely recruiting Arya or both. And I think those are factors as well. Interesting. And again, this. Good reason to bring up Darth Vader again, <laughs> of all things. Because, you know, in Star Wars, the whole point was Darth Vader was like, they thought that he was going to bring balance to the Force, but they just didn't understand what that meant. That meant a lot of Jedi were going to die. He basically, by bringing him into the organization, he destroyed it. And that is kind of what I think a lot of us are predicting with the Faceless Men here. By bringing Arya in, she's the the one that's going to destroy them. Darth sort of Aria, like, what, yeah, Darth, Dar- Darth Arya, yeah, sort of like how the very first faceless man was just a one slave amongst many who ended up bringing the whole system down. So that is really cool. Of course, that theory might reach a dead end. Also interesting too, Arya says she's not afraid of plague slash bloody sores, and she's not afraid of the dead. Well, Westeros is going to be full of both of those. She's not being not afraid of the dead could come in real handy when they're walking around. Being not afraid of plague. Well, with grayscale and the bloody flux and all that, well, mm, yeah, that, again, you can easily see that come in handy. Another question is that's asked is Jockin's face change seems even more magical now. Not that it didn't seem magical before, but he did, clearly didn't go get a new hood. He just waved his hand, and there it was. Tree Girl, another suggestion of how 
the faceless men might know that Arya is a skin changer is that if she talks in her sleep. That's a great idea. I hadn't considered that one. Um, she certainly mentions that you never know who's listening. She may not be aware that she talks in her sleep. And if she does, well, there's a lot that she could give away that way. Yeah. Very good idea. Uh, one other somewhat funny line that's actually got a little series uh, business here is uh, he has a villain's beard. <laughs> when she's looking at the um, the insurance man and trying to like psych herself up to kill him, trying to make her think, like she needs to think of him as a bad guy to kill him. She can't just do it, which is another sign that she doesn't quite belong with the House of Black and White because she, she doesn't have their same attitude about killing. But Nina had a really good catch here. There's only one other person that has this beard, this little pointed beard in the entire series. Who else has a little pointed beard? Littlefinger. Villain's beard. Hello. Okay, that fits pretty well. So that's pretty neat, actually. There's not a single other beard like this in the entire series. If that's true, then maybe this insurance guy really is scum. Maybe he really is someone who cheats people out of their, uh, their money. Uh, in that case, it's, the story is a little more, a little more straightforward after all. Archmaester Rennie's another great piece of data from the iBooks edition. Reminds us that George R. R. Martin's a close friend of Roger Zelazny, the author who wrote the uh, Princes and Amber series. And in this chapter is mentioned the pattern, worshipers of the pattern. And the pattern is a reference to that series. There's a, uh, that's a really big aspect of, of that storyline. Also, Guinevere Greenstone says, Lamy and the girls in Bravos hear her howling in her sleep. Oh, great call. Yes, yeah, so she does howl like a wolf in her sleep. Ooh, that is a big piece of additional evidence. So that's so we definitely know she does talk in her sleep, not just talk, but howl. And that's, in fact, the thing we were wondering if she gives away in her sleep. Well done, chat. Coming through again. Great info. Jonathan Hagee says, maybe it is a Bravosi-style beard and Littlefinger honors it to wear his honor his grandfather. Oh, that's a good catch. Yeah, Littlefinger does come from Bravosi stock. Yeah, I really love that idea that it's it's just a Bravosi look. Could be. Vill the villain's beard is popular in Bravos. <laughs> He's like, what can I do for you today, sir? Give me a villain's beard. <laughs> <laughs> Krieger Damarung says, hey, gang, tell us he is a good narrator. Well, thanks, Krieger Damarung. Yeah, I'll be involved in the project, certainly, for the reading, the T-Wow chapters. I've told everyone in the chat, because people kept asking... I want to do a voice, et cetera. I said, oh, yeah? if you have a good microphone, email us and we'll go from there and consider we have to hear your microphones. It'll be a while, all that. But send us an email if you're interested. Or, we'll or join the Discord or the oh, Slack, actually. That's yeah. a really good oh, idea. Okay. Great thinking, y'all. Um, we're doing that. I like <laughs> the idea enough to, to just say yes right away. And good microphone means not a webcam microphone. Yeah. Built-in uh, microphone, generally. Yes. We'll you know, we'll have to tell you. If, if It'll be a bummer if we have to tell you, hey, you can't use your voice because of so-and-so. But you understand. We want this to be super high quality. Yeah. Cersei 2, a ritual in the street, a.k.a. the one with the walk of shame. Batch of rituals culminates with the POV, who is the actual victim. That's why these ritual chapters are in a very certain order. Cersei's the climax of them because you know, it's not just a witness. She is the one. She's the actual person uh, in the center of it all. Cersei received political capital and power from her father and in general from her family and her marriage to Robert and the children who were passed off as his. But she also earned quite a bit of power on her own, much of it through two major means, fear and intimidation mixed with actual brutality from time to time and her beauty. And her beauty is a major source of power because it is 
key to exercising power over those who do her worst deeds. I mean, heck, a kettle black murdered the high septon in exchange for sex. Like, whoa, that is a man. But don't make the mistake of separating those two things. The kettle black didn't just want sex. He wanted sex with the queen. He wanted her to leave the crown on, pray recall. And the fate doesn't want her to have that power anymore. They don't want her to be able to use that to contract murders, right? We just got through a chapter where murder contracts were a big deal. And well, killing people indiscriminately, whether or not they're good or evil, isn't so great. Neither is pretty much no one. Cersei wants to kill as someone that uh, deserves death, at least not that way. I guess that's not true. Some of the people Cersei wants to kill, we wouldn't mind seeing killed. A lot of terrible people close to the, the crown. And this one, she thinks how they've taken both crowns, the literal one and her hair. One will grow back and the other can be taken back and she'll need to because the faith has shown all of King's Landing, rich, poor, common, noble, local, foreign, that they can make the queen walk through the streets naked. That is a huge demonstration of their power. That is also a great taking of power away from her. They have the power to take her power. That says a lot. And it's right out in the open. Normally, these power games, the Game of Thrones, is played behind closed doors, except when it spills out onto the battlefield. So it's either like very behind closed doors or way out in the open. And so this is different, right? A queen marching naked through the streets. People haven't even heard of such a thing for the most part, except for Cersei herself, who has seen this with her former stepmother. But that was no queen. That wasn't even a Lannister. So it's not nearly as severe or as gruesome as... as what happened to Theon, but it is along the same lines of a character who deserves punishment, but not like this. Like a lot of other characters too, the chapter starts with her thinking about how restless she's been lately. On the last night of her imprisonment, the queen could not sleep. She's a bit worried about people assaulting her, but that fear passes quickly enough as she considers that, nah, the guards won't allow that. And the Faith, as we've said, doesn't want her dead. If she died during her walk, the crown would be justified in turning things back around on them. This whole power game would blow up in their face because it wasn't in, a death sentence was not agreed to. And the crown would be like, well, she was under your care and she was killed under your care. You bear the responsibility. So they don't want that. That, that would be a bad result. Nevertheless, she does resent that violence is not an option here. I choose violence. That was one of my favorite quotes from the show from her. <laughs> meaning as a tool for her not to be used against her, of course. She would love for, you know, Jamie to still have his hand and to come rescue her here, but she knows that's not happening. But she also thinks how Jamie was too soft to put his hand in the lion's mouth, not realizing the irony. First of all, it's ridiculous to call Jamie soft. We've seen how brave he is. He's certainly not afraid to face danger, especially not a wild animal. We literally saw him face a wild animal after losing his hand, <laughs> a bear, right? Cersei could have lost a hand in that moment. Right? She wasn't proving anything other than what a ridiculous risk are you taking for no gain just to prove that you can do it. Jamie eventually, of course, did lose his hand to a different animal, goat. More to the point, though, Cersei walked straight into the proverbial lion's den, or rather the sparrow's den, and didn't walk back out, proving that, you know, just the risk alone isn't worth it. And she's only walking back out now without, you know, her clothes or her hair or is a lot of her power. Having the courage to do something doesn't make that thing worthy of doing. It's like this sticking your hand in the lion's mouth in that case. It reminds me of like the, the finger dance or something like that where it's just like, what are you, what are you doing? 
Like this is this risk is not worth the reward. We've talked about risk reward ratio quite a lot near the end of the book with Cyvas games and John Connington's ridiculous saving of wine, but this is kind of similar. Walking unprotected into the face, inner sanctum, sticking your hand in a lion's mouth. Make sure it's worth it. People think of rituals as associated with magic, but really it's not. Rituals, especially in fantasy worlds, but rituals aren't really that. They can involve magic. It's really just a set of predetermined actions using words, gestures, and or objects. Thanks, Wikipedia. Even saying hello to almost everyone you encounter could be kind of a ritual in a very strict technical sense. You are technically correct that that's a ritual. The best kind of correct. But despite rituals being present in all our chapters today, I saved this chat for the Cersei one because rather than doing it pre-chapter theme discussion stuff, because Cersei's is by far the one that bears the most resemblance to the modern, common, real world. Less so the walk itself, but the part before it, meaning shaving someone completely as part of a transformation is not uncommon across many world traditions. And quite often it is because they're trying to subconsciously get you to feel like rebirth. They're trying to mirror the rebirth ritual as it does here. Quote, His High Holiness has commanded that you present yourself as the gods made you. Did you have sandals on your feet when you came forth from your lady mother's womb? I did. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Shay and I both did, yeah. Did you guys? We figured yes. You know, some people have hair on their heads and some people have sandals on their feet. Some people have come out with sunglasses or a guitar. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not cool enough for that. Yeah. So, though it's clearly religious here, it's not always the case. Take soldiers, for example. When you sign up in almost any military in the world nowadays and in the recent past and in the ancient past, too, in a lot of cases, they shave your head. They maybe give you a big spray down or something like that, but especially the shaving of your head, not like your whole body like Cersei has done here. But still, it has a powerful emotional impact on you. It makes it, it makes it feel kind of like being reborn. That is the idea here. As it says, that is how you come into the world, except... As Ashaya said, sometimes you do have some hair. It's also often done with prisoners, right? Prisoners, you bring them into a new prison, check them in, shave that hair. Part of that is to de-louse, but part of it is to make you less individual, to bring you down a peg on your individuality. Hair is a really defining feature on a person. It's the one, really the only part of you that you can change day to day. I mean, you can change your clothes day to day, but that's not, that's not literally a part of you, right? You can look different every day. One of the ways you would do that is by changing your hair. I mean, you can put on makeup, but that's, again, adding... Something. Yeah, the hair is like the one of your... It's unique in that sense. And Cersei's hair is particularly notable. I mean, she's got this beautiful mop of golden hair that everyone notices all the time. It's, it's, uh, it is a source of power. And now it's not, at least. She's Samson. <laughs> Lost her strength. So it is akin to, you can see why it's kind of like removing individuality because the hair can really define you. Even if you normally don't have a lot of hair, that too is distinctive. That is why it's a surrendering of yourself or giving, of, giving up of a part of yourself to something greater. Why a lot of monks shave their head. Same thing. Of course, it's not nearly the same thing when it's being forced on you. I just mentioned monks and other things. These are, a lot of these are voluntary. The prisoner one is a good example of one that isn't. And that, that actually, one other part I would like to mention about the military is it's often young people. You know, people join the military later in life sometimes, but an but a overwhelming number of people who join the military do it at like 
age 18, 19, 20, 21, because a lot of times it's a substitute for college or something like that. My own grandfather lied about his age to get in early. That comes, that is, that's a different generation, y'all. <laughs> He's like, I'm 17, I'm ready now. Go you. <laughs> she now parallels her brother too, because remember, he was shorn too. Uh, he, he was doing it as a disguise, not a punishment, but it was sort of forced on him by circumstance. Cersei hasn't changed for the better as a result of any of this. She might be more wary and paranoid and violent going forward. In fact, she probably changed for the worse. The High Sparrow isn't ignorant of that, though. Remember, this is a spectacle. He's, he doesn't actually think holy forces are at work here. Uh, he, he's going to say they are, but he seems a little more uh, cynical than that. Not a true believer, just an understander of how the true belief works. He knows how to manipulate. As we discussed in Cersei 1, the High Sparrow does understand these power dynamics quite well, he's gaining power over her. And he knows, he knows, yeah, he knows she's not devout now, but he knows she has to pretend in public and will probably have to continue pretending because, you know, he's holding over her like that. And the common folk aren't aware of a lot of these details. They're not aware of this back and forth. They don't know the High Sparrow isn't really that devout. Um, They don't know that Cersei is just pretending Yeah. In other words, Cersei probably believes in the Seven about the same as she did before, which is whatever, not much at all. But the people who saw what happened to her, a few more people may have gone to bed praying that night. The spectacle of all this, seeing what happens, the demonstration of power, it probably reminded a few people who's in charge upstairs, beyond the king. Like, according to the faith, the king and queen are ordained by the gods in the first place. And this is this kind of helps remind them of all that. Like, who's really in charge? It's the gods, yeah? And that's why it's a spectacle, not a private punishment. It's not about her. It's about power. It's about the Game of Thrones. Nina points out, look how her sexuality is being weaponized against her. In the, in the face eyes, her sexuality has to be punished. And that means parading her naked for every man, woman, and child onlooker to throw comments and jeers her way. Far from Cersei's fears that the sight of a queen will inspire lust, it's inspiring humiliation and laughter. And that's a bit of a theme here. Cersei very much not understanding what's going to happen. She's afraid of things. She's, she's worried about things, but she doesn't fathom what's really going to happen. It's during the walk that she realizes, oh, what have I done? In fact, that's, that's a specific phrase that comes to mind for her. The faith claims that women's bodies cause temptation and lust, but one would think that like, then why would they do this? Well, because they're hypocrites. They, their need to issue punishment trumps their need to n- not expose a woman to public crowds. This is when Cersei remembers what happened to her stepmother, too. She's thinking about, ah, of course, this would come to mind and that it was Tywin's idea. So that's a bit of irony that it's happening to her own, his own daughter now. She remembers this line said about her stepmother, quote, so haughty you'd think she'd forgot she'd come from dirt. Once we got her clothes off her, though, she was just another whore. And this is a trappings of power. Melisandre's argument that's come up many times, we've brought it up all over many chapters. It's very relevant here. Cersei's trappings of power include the mistake, mystique of her beauty, her hair, all these things, all this power she had. Uh, taken away from her and sacrificed at the altar of the faith to make them more powerful. Imagine if we saw Mel Sonder without her glamours, like we did on TV. It's a different look, massively different. Can you imagine that version of Mel Sonder standing in front of the Dothraki shouting and screaming and, and inspiring them? It would be different. 
they would be different. I don't know how different, but it would be different. Would she ever have gotten that close to Stannis? Maybe not. I don't think her beauty is the reason she has power, but would she have ever gotten to Stannis in the first place without it? That's the difference. Like, she has the power with or without the beauty, but that was her access, right? And I think it's similar here. Tywin tried to enforce what he saw as the correct order of the world. He was furious with the idea that his stepmother, I guess it was Cersei's step-grandmother, I kept saying stepmother, but anyway, that she'd be promoted above her station, that she should be have all these jewels and all this stuff to, to have the trappings of power that she hasn't earned because she's not amidst the nobility. That is how Tywin probably saw that. Yet the punishment works the same on someone who is noble. Of course, Cersei maintains the power of her birth station and some of the power through her children. But this power that she's built up through scaring people, through intimidating people, through her own actions, through her own looks, that is massively taken away. So in the case of her step-grandmother, there was no means for her to get power back. She had farther to fall. Cersei does have means to come back to. Cersei thinks to herself, women were always the cruelest where other women were concerned. Definitely some internalized misogyny, not just from her, but from the women shouting the insults because society has taught them insults that are more potent towards women. That's just what they've been given since childhood is to been taught that sex is different for men and women in this society and to a lesser extent in a lot of real world societies. A man who has lots of sex is a champion. A woman who has is not. It's like it's it's blatantly obvious where George is drawing this from in terms of the real world, but it's just it's a much more demonstrative medieval setting, much more brutal. Speaking of, this is when she starts to learn it. Now think about back, think back on Asha's chapter where some of this groundwork was done when Asha has this very perceptive line. She's like, why do men use the C word? Why do they call women that demeaningly when it's the only thing they value about a woman? It's like, yeah, that's a pretty good point. I guess that's why they do it in a sense. It's because it is the only thing they value. So they reduce you, they reduce a woman to that one thing they value and while being reductive about what that all means. So here's a quote where Cersei really realizes what's happening. Gowned and crowned, she was a queen. Naked, bloody, limping, she was only a woman, not so very different from their wives, more like their mothers than their pretty little maiden daughters. What have I done? Yeah, it's, it's very poignant. George, you know, I, it's, it's good to get takes from women on scenes like this because it's hard for men to understand how the world perceives them and how they're taught to associate self-worth with beauty and what Cersei didn't realize and is is dawning on her here very painfully is that, yes, most women are held lower than men in this society. She was something of an exception because of her great power. Yes, men of similar rank to her would still look down on her a lot, but she was still above almost everyone else in the world. And so much of that is taken away from by this. They're laughing at her. She's, she slips in literal feces and eventually it gets so bad that she's crawling. Here's another quote. The next thing she knew, she was crawling, scrambling uphill on all fours like a dog as the good folks of King's Landing made way for her, laughing and jeering and applauding her. Oof, right? Like, how can you take a queen seriously after that? How can you look at her and not picture that? 
can you picture yourself running, like not crawling nude up a? Not really. No. Yeah, I've tried a picture like anyone doing it. It's actually a comical image. Yeah, it's it, it, you could see. Yeah, it's if it were done right in a movie or a TV show, it would be funny. Yeah, like they're on all fours, yeah. and, like going uphill, nude. It could be funny, but no, not right. But this here. is not. Yeah, but this is not. Yeah, exactly. Like you say. But it, yeah, but like that's the lasting image. A lot of people are going to remember. Like they're going to see that. They're going to be in when every time they see Cersei, they're going to think of this. Nina says it's one of the saddest writings, in her opinion, in the whole series. Cersei's been so thoroughly humiliated, demeaned, and verbally brutalized. That's another thing. Can you think of a character who would take this worse? Like name a character that this would be harder for. I can't. Like I think Danny would handle it better. I think Asha would handle it better. What do you think about Sansa. Yeah, I think I, Sansa I think, would handle it better because Sansa would, would be, has less far to fall. Yeah, I think it might be more traumatizing. Yeah, you know, it might be more traumatizing. It's true. She doesn't have any experience with anything remotely like that of people seeing her nude. Sansa's a good candidate for it being worse. I, for I'd her, be yeah. similar, but like her, especially in that her beauty is important as well for her. But yeah. she's still the pretty young maiden daughter, so it wouldn't That's really true. matter was, as much yeah. for her. It would be real bad for Sansa. Yeah, but still, not. I, I agree with you, yeah, Cersei my, overall. So, so that is, it's, it's quite poignant that George chooses this character. It's so well set up, so long ago. As dark as it is, it's, it's also quite brilliant. To, okay, so now here's where we're coming to next. The end of the chapter, though, shows us. It gives us an exact pathway to solving all of this for Cersei. To regain her reputation, to get back, to not be laughed at. What is she going to have to do? She's going to have to be dark and brutal and savage and monstrous and murderous. They just, to, to exercise the demons of laughter, she's got to be twice, thrice, four times as nasty as she ever was. And I do think that's exactly where it's going to go. And she's immediately given the tool for that. The chapter ends with, instead of the princess being rescued by the hero, we have the evil queen rescued by a monster. And she thinks upon even fairy tales by thinking of giants and dreams and stories, a bit like Sansa, in a dark turn. <laughs> It's, this is a refrain for her. All throughout this chapter, she thinks about how Jamie's not cutting it. Jamie couldn't cut it. Jamie isn't here to rescue her. But think back. What would happen if she would have walked into the High Sparrow's chamber with the mountain instead of by herself? They wouldn't have taken her. They wouldn't have seized her. No Jamie, no Kevin, no problem. A parallel to Bran having Hodor as his sword arm, perhaps. It's an odd parallel, but they both have always wanted to be knights. They've both always lamented that they can't fight. Baylor the Blessed is a parallel to Bran as well. Fitting in that way, too, he pa she passes his statue. Baylor the Blessed, of course, the parallels to Bran, being de deeply devout, wandering through uh, his, his walk of shame himself, walking through Dorne is similar to Bran going, trudging through the north. And of course, a walk of shame creates a connection between her and him as well. Now, of course, uh, Ares, the Mad King, had a walk as well. It was sort of in reverse of this one. With Ares, it's he walked to the Sept after his children died. Like he had a bunch of stillbirths, so he walked there sort of to give homage to the gods to try to get back in their good graces. And of course, Cersei is walking to the Sept, and then her children are probably going to die after, right? Or walking away from the Sept back to the Red Keep. So it's the reverse direction. Also, in, in, with Ares, after this, one of his children survives. 
It's Viserys. So Rhaegar finally has a younger brother, much younger. And then Tywin has this tourney to celebrate Viserys' birth the next year. Cersei remembers that tourney well because it was the one where Ares rejected the offer of her for Rhaegar. And in that same year, the defiance of Duskendale, which, as we've said, is itself a parallel to Cersei being imprisoned by the faith. Defiance of Cersei Dale. <laughs> yeah, many brilliant parallels here. Yeah, something she thinks about a lot throughout this chapter is having that sword arm. And then at the end of the chapter, she gets it. And the line is, yes, thought Cersei Lannister. Oh, yes. That's the same line that Alice Karstark says when she's ready to get married. John's like, you ready to get married? She's like, yes. Oh, yes. She's very ready to have some swords backing her position. She's tired of running away from her family, chasing her and trying to exercise power over her. She's like, now what's up? I got 200 thens. She's like, yeah, even though they're thens, those are strong men with swords. And so Alice Karstark is, is now a force to be reckoned with. Cersei was already a force to be reckoned with, but now it's a different kind of force. This is new Cersei. Remember, remember the version of her in the TV show? I'm not even talking about what she did. I just mean what she looked like. Short hair, all in black. Of course, the black was mourning, so we're not ready for that part of her yet. But still, this is the beginning of a transition to a different Cersei. And... It's beautifully done by George. Beautiful darkness here. You know how her hair didn't really grow in the show? Yeah. Are we going to get like descriptions in the books? Like Cersei had a short bob. (laughs) Cersei had shoulder length hair. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) That can tell us how much time has passed just based on the length of Cersei's hair. (laughs) That's why they didn't want to do it in the show. I'm positive (laughs) of it, honestly. (laughs) It's it's just that it would just lead to a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, you're right. (laughs) I think Cersei's going to catch on pretty quickly to how different the world treats her with the mountain standing at her side. When she realizes, wow, I really have been missing this. (laughs) I really did need to be intimidating. I really did need to have the threat of violence backing everything I do very presently, very visually. She can go right back to feeling untouchable because that was the problem. She was so arrogant when she walked into the High Sparrow's domain, she didn't even consider that he would seize her. It didn't even enter her mind. If she'd had the mountain next to her, she'd have been right, though. They wouldn't have, they probably would have talked nicer to her. They probably would have been like, yes, it's so nice to see you, good Queen Cersei. What did we just say about Barristan last week? How hard it is to be a Kingsguard that your enemies, when they know you have Kingsguard, they'll wait for your Kingsguard to be asleep or out drinking that night. Guess what? This dude doesn't do any of that. This guy doesn't sleep. He doesn't go out Chasing women, he doesn't even drink, probably. He doesn't even talk. That dude is omnipresent. Undead champions, my friends. He, he, we saw Danny sitting atop the pyramid as her as a symbol of power to show her dominance over the city. Cersei now sits atop the mountain. Now, I promised you all a connection way back to book one, and here it is. This is Bran's coma dream. There were shadows all around him. One shadow was dark as ash with the terrible face of a hound. Another was armored like the sun, golden and beautiful. Over them both loomed a giant in armor made of stone. But when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. In that dream, the mountain looms over them all. The black blood is indication of his poisoning and that he is undead. So is the stone armor. 
Look how early George planned that. Of course, I'm sure he's changed a few details along the way, but Gregor and Sandor's terrible relationship was clear very early on. But this quote foreshadows, emphasis on the shadow part, a much more that we couldn't completely understand what it was foreshadowing. But we know we're closer to it because look at what happens at the end of the crawl. A shadow fell across them both, blotting out the sun. The queen felt cold steel slide beneath her, a pair of great armored arms lifting her off the ground, lifting her up into the air as easily as she had lifted Joffrey when he was still a babe. A giant, thought Cersei, dizzy, as he carried her with great strides toward the gatehouse. Oh, wow, right? The giant part, the blocking out the sun, the shadow falling across them. Oh, yeah. So George scrapped the five-year gap, and that created some new stories and changed others. But it seems that this plot line of an undead Gregor, Jamie, and Cersei, and Sandor was something along those lines was planned and still going. Note that Cersei wasn't actually in that first brand dream, but it's kind of hard to imagine something having a huge impact on Jamie and not impacting Cersei, at least somewhat. And here we see it coming directly into play. So as I spoke feverishly about last time, Jamie is being replaced by Gregor. Her great shining light replaced by deep, dark shadows. His vibrant passion for her swapped for cold, unthinking obedience. Love replaced by fear and death. The symbolism is almost straightforward here. Jamie is the sun, golden and beautiful, the light of her life. Gregor blocks out the sun in both of those quotes. But it comes up elsewhere in the chapter as well when she's going through the process of being shaved. This is the tie into Arya that I mentioned. It's time for the razor to go between her legs. She imagines Jamie down there and the warmth of him between her legs replaced with, quote, the razor was ice cold. It's almost as if she is following in the footsteps of her father, who was a much different man when his beloved wife, Joanna, and Cer- you know, Cersei's mother, was alive. He, he lost the love of his life, and he turned to darkness. I'm not that he was a great dude before that, but still, it was a big change in his personality. Now, Jamie's not dead, of course, but their love life right now is. And we do expect it to maybe come back, but probably not right away. And in the meantime, this is what's there instead. It takes us back to the early books for another consideration. When there's no sun, there is darkness and cold like the long night itself. This is Cersei's long night. Cersei was portrayed early on with a lot of Ice Queen symbolism and vibes. If if you've been with us since the start of Valar Eridus, you remember us pointing those things out very early on. And some of you caught it on your own, no doubt. I think this is what we're seeing. This is that transition towards the Ice Queen Cersei we saw foreshadowed so early on. She's losing love. She's losing Jamie and the sunlight that comes with him and all that. She's lost her golden hair. And now she's got a freaking undead monster doing her bidding. Like, yeah. And what's going to make it even darker is the likely and something she considers in this chapter. She thinks of Maggie the Frog. In this chapter, she thinks of she's guilt and fear and all these things. And, and of course, the loss of Tommen and Marcella is still in the back of her head, that's going to harden the ice. Think of Rhaenyra or TV Cersei, again, who trod a similar path. Remember how TV Cersei reacted to the death of Joffrey? Similar to book Cersei. Screaming, yelling, angry, passionate. TV Cersei, when Tommen died, she just stared. It's not like she wasn't having a reaction, but it was internalized. Don't forget, internalization doesn't mean she's not passionate. It doesn't mean she's not raging. It's just on the inside and said, don't forget, 
Nothing burns like ice. Nothing burns like the cold. As Cersei continues her walk, too, if we're backing up just a little bit to think about some of the other things that she considers while she's on the walk, she thinks about, she has some guilt. She has some fear about what she's done. The people representing Malara, Ned, and Sansa with Lady, she even thinks of Lady, all represent things that Cersei, well, wrongs. Cersei's wrongs. Murdering Malara is a pretty big, obvious one. Even She even imagines Malara wet, which is a creepy detail because, of course, she shoved Malara into a well. Manipulated Sansa, married her to Tyrion, had Lady killed when Lady did nothing. Um, her father had been this dominating influence and he's still looking down on her. He knows that, or she knows that her father would be very displeased by this particular spectacle. And, of course, she sees Tyrion in the crowd, too. It's also a little bit of a homage to all the faces that Arya sees in the, in the Sanctum. But these are people she knows. That's a big difference. It's weird that Cersei sort of recognizes that Kevin was behind, or at least partly behind this, but she still doesn't feel too vindictive towards him, yet she does feel vindictive towards Lancel, <laughs> which is kind of odd that she is more angry at Lancel for being a betrayer. And also that she somehow finds a way to pin this walk partly on Marjorie. Like, I don't know how she gets there, but she definitely does it. She's like, and that little queen too, she, surely she's happy to see this. Surely they conspired at that. Like, what? What Marjorie probably didn't have anything to do with this. But that's Cersei for you, finding out ways to put the Tyrells in her, in her uh, sights yet again, even while they're nowhere to be seen. And, this is another reason why I think a lot of y'all are, if you haven't already come around to it, you're understanding why maybe you thought Kevin was decent through one read, but on reread, Kevin's not good. <laughs> He's not a good person. <laughs> He's not as bad as a lot of other people, for sure. But when Varus says good man in service to bad people, eh, he means good in the capable, like efficient, like competent. That's what he means by good. He doesn't mean good like ethical. Although maybe he does mean that. I just wouldn't agree with him. He, maybe Varus is just, by comparison, Kevin is decent compared to so many other people. It also just seems like Kevin's lying. Kevin like comes off as, oh, I love my niece, but for the good of the realm, I have to do this. Nah, it feels like some vindictiveness. Like, I don't like her. I want to teach her a lesson and this is going to really stick it to her. He knows her. He knows what we just said. He doesn't know all the POVs, but he knows that Cersei would not take this well. This is a particularly awful experience for her, given her personality. He knows that. Um, he also, she also thinks of Ned Stark, which is a, this is very worth zooming in on for a second here. She thinks they looked at Ned Stark the same way, though, which is to say hungrily and hatefully, but she manufactured that. She's the reason that they hated Ned Stark because she cast aspersions on him when he was actually behaving pretty well. Talk about karma. Now, this is karma. People misuse the definition of karma all the time. She is getting what she inflicted on someone else. That's karma. She inflicted this on Eddard. Now, she's not having her head cut off, but she's the spectacle in front of the public display, the humiliation in front of the people of King's Landing with a religious sort of power dynamic behind it all. I mean, and, and interesting too, Nina points out, I think I didn't mention this at the time, way back when Ned was executed. He didn't actually swear to the old gods. He said, I, High Septon and Baylor the Beloved and the Seven. 
that Joffrey was the right king. He, he basically the pinky swear, like I have my fingers crossed behind my back, right? He didn't swear that Joffrey is the rightful king to the old gods, which are the ones he believes in. So that was a pretty good little semantic trick by Ned, knowing he's going to die. He's like, well, let me not insult the gods on my way out. It's nice to have Cersei kind of clarify her side of things, what her plan was to know for certain that she did want Ned just to take the black. She did. Things got out of hand for her, which is part of why there's such this wide suspicion that Littlefinger suggested to Joffrey the execution part. There's so many reasons why, of course, and we talked about them at the time, so we don't need to rehash them. But there is a new detail here that Cersei remembers that Littlefinger was like, I'll marry Sansa. And they're like, no, you're not highborn enough. Which, And then, of course, immediately Littlefinger goes about becoming higher titled and then grabs, steals Sansa instead. So, woo, that's creepy, isn't it? He's just been on that track for so long and Cersei's just here circling back, thinking about it, was still not realizing what's going on. Of course, she has no idea where Sansa is. She has no idea Sansa is with Littlefinger right now. But if she did, she'd be maybe piecing a few things together. Theodan Wells is Theodan the True. He's the one that leads the procession. He's a candidate for being the champion against Gregor. I mean to suggest maybe he's a little too unknown to be the face champion. That's a reasonable argument. I would say that maybe that is a good reason, though, because someone's got to die to this guy. And Lancel being the champion is, is another name that's thrown out, but it just seems he's just so weak. It seems odd that they would choose him, especially because the faith, like I said, the high Septon isn't a true zealot. If he was a zealot, he might be like, the gods will strengthen Lancel's sword on him, but I don't think he's, I think he's too pragmatic for that. She thinks too how she's, she thinks too that her escort is probably wearing hair shirts. And if you don't know what a hair shirt is, it's just basically a shirt made out of animal fur or hair that's really uncomfortable. And that's the point. It's to remind you to not get comfortable. It's like a, it's a form of sacrifice, a form of devotion to God. It's a real world thing, which is yet more evidence that the faith of the seven is rooted in real world Christianity, Catholicism, et cetera, which is what George was raised in. So that makes sense. Jonathan Hagee says, sounds like the blade going into John. Uh, which is he referring to? Oh, um, the blade. Oh, the, the, the next scat- one says mm. Curtis Franks. Sounds like Danny's dream. Ice cold between her legs. And so ice cold. So very good points, y'all. Curtis Franks says, uh, sounds like Danny's dream. Yeah. With, the, yeah. with the, his member was cold as ice with the blue lips or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good call, y'all. That's a very good point. Um, I wonder, we'll have to think about that a little more. See if there's more to it. Yeah, the, one of the things that makes this so brutal for Cersei is just how casual it is for everybody. Just how she's a spectacle, how she's the, the entertainment. That's such a weird thing for a queen to be. It, it reminds Nina of Jamie's shock at being slapped by Urzwick. He, he's used to being above everyone. And the realization that Urzwick doesn't fear him at all, that doesn't looks down on him, that can be so casually violent towards him is very shocking to Jamie because he's... Used to being up here. He's a Lannister. He's been held above the world for so long and and falling is shocking. And it's similar for Cersei here. That's part of why Cersei went into the walk with greater confidence, with with denial about what it really meant. Jaime, and it was probably, we could probably have said the same thing about him at the time, that he didn't realize the danger he was in. He he thought his birth would protect him more than it really would. And that's a, a theme. Fear being replaced by worse fear. Remember we've said it can always get worse. <laughs> Balon was bad. Euron is worse, right? And we've given lots of other examples on that as well. 
And another really interesting symbolic moment comes when Cersei notices a guy who looks like Robert and he's eating like a meat skewer and, and he's like, want some? And Cersei's like, ah, and she just looks away and he throws it at her and it hits her on the thigh and it gets blood on her thigh. And that's suggestive because blood on the thigh by a man who looked like her ex-husband who abused her constantly. There's definitely some symbolism in there. I wasn't sure what it was. I, I asked for some help on that one. Our friend Rohan in our Discord suggested a man who looks like Robert tossing half-cooked meat is like suggesting now she's everyone's to abuse. In that scene where everyone's looking at her in the same way, everyone sees her as a piece of meat now. But it's also, Nina suggests, it's full sexual display. When she doesn't respond the way he wants, meaning Robert, he, you know, hits her or denigrates her uh, in the way he can, which he couldn't punch her because, you know, he wasn't next to her. So he throws his food at her, which is the only thing he can do. Pretty good interpretation, I think. Yeah. Speaking of Robert, though, it's no coincidence that Kyburn named her new champion Robert, right? <laughs> in Westeros, a husband is supposed to be the lady wife's protector. That's what they're supposed to do. Of course, it doesn't always work out that way, but that is an aspect of knightly culture. But Robert was not like that. Robert abused her. He hit her. He was not a good husband in a number of ways. This man, this monster, if it works out the way it's supposed to, will never strike Cersei. He will only strike her enemies. And he will never, certainly never touch her sexually. That's not even possible, as far as we know. Forget what you saw in the show. The reference to the name Strong is even an under-the-radar reference, because Cersei is a strong parallel to Rhaenyra, as we've said countless times in countless places. And who is the likely father of Rhaenyra's children? Harwin Strong, a.k.a. Breakbones, or Broken Bones, after the tournament where Kristen Cole smashed him up. Uh, so that is an intentional parallel to Cersei's past, both a connection to Cersei's parallel character, Rhaenyra, one of her parallels, and to her own husband, where this, this man will be a better, quote-unquote, protector than Robert was. Also, the shame bells. Uh, that's really the last point I have for today. It's interesting to think about that. It was, it was an interesting pop culture phenomenon that the shame bells thing became such a thing all over the internet. People just saying shame over... It's it just so widespread. I tell you, whenever I say something in my streams with Kyle, yeah. like that he wants to shame, he has a little sound bite. Go shame, he shame. Does. He shames me every week. He uses those in our Witcher streams yeah, too. He yeah. loves to shame people. <laughs> Aziz even did a little, a little uh, pub crawl where he shamed people. He did. That's true. I did do that. <laughs> <laughs> Our friend Chuck Laws of yeah. Fanomaniacs. He, yeah, he he celebrated the end of um, I think fantasy football season with a, or maybe it was Game of Thrones fantasy yeah, well, season. Yeah, it was someone who had lost. Yeah, so they had a party where they got got, to get, got together and rang the shame mm -hmm. bells, and the bell was like engraved with like first place or something like that. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. I was recruited as a bell ringer. I know all about the shame bells, my friends. I have firsthand experience. You would know all about being a, a high sparrow, too, from Con of Thrones in your oh. own, like, weird burlap sack hair shirt. That's true. In the very first Con of Thrones, I did wear a burlap sack and was shadowed by four septas. We walked through the hotel towards our panel, and people who were not there for the con saw us. And <laughs> there it was my friends, Jaden. 
Allison Val, as in Val, the YouTuber and because Twitch streamer. Geek, yeah. Because geek, yeah. And then um, our friend Faith. I'm going to post a picture in the chat. Yeah, it's my people. Facebook background. And yeah, I was just wearing a burlap sack and bare feet and boxers because you can see through burlap. <laughs> and so we're walking through the hotel like, yeah, we're going to our thing. And, and, and people, like I said, people who don't know the con, don't know what's a con. They have no idea what's going on. And one of them just goes, oh, hello, sisters. Thought they were nuns. It was really funny. <laughs> but they had full like blue septus robes on and everything. Just like the only like the little piece of their face is all that's visible. That was pretty cool. That was a fun time. So yeah, I gave a sermon at Con of Thrones about the church of the weight and, and how the weight brings us all together. How the lack of new material is part of why we all come together. It builds community. Yeah. But anyway, the shame bells actually in this chapter, they're much more muted as, uh, well, they're not muted. They make a distinct sound. but. Again, it fits into this general pastiche of diaspora of bells and ringing and King's Landing and where that's all going. And I wonder if this is just a different form of bells, but it's still, we got to keep it in mind. Okay, folks, that is all for today. Last week, we did 135 minutes and one second. This week, 148.50. So far, 2,625 minutes of 2,922. Only about 300 minutes left. You know, I gave you the wrong percentages last week. I probably gave the wrong percentage for several weeks in a row. It looks like the spreadsheet was off. Oh, well, it's not a big deal. We're actually at 89.8% now. I said it was 89% last week, but clearly that's not true. This week, it should be right. <laughs> As usual, check out the podcast version compared to the video version. The podcast version's a little... Uh, has Has no editing done to it there's a it's a little more laid back a few more mistakes are in there a few more laughs uh the the edited version's a little more streamlined a little quicker cuts out a few of the mistakes you won't hear me say i love you but go away to xerxes (laughs) yeah that won't be in there (laughs) i usually cut out a little simple shout outs things like that little hellos just to be more efficient um Don't forget to like the video or leave a review on the podcast version. As I am wont to say, it really does help. You'd be surprised at what a difference it makes to get uh, the attention of the algorithms. Algorithms, please notice us. Mention a few different episodes today. If you want more and you want to delve into our scripted content or prior uh, semi-scripted live streams, Fire and Blood Dragons and Fire and Blood Faceless Men in the Iron Bank are good ones to get involved in some of the things we discussed today. Also, the Hellhorn episode, of course, that's a pretty straightforward uh, dot connector. The Battle of Ice, of course, I've been shouting that out almost every week. Three-part series with Jeff Hartline, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish, which was his first ever appearance on a YouTube show. And the Defiance of Duskendale, which is our almost most recent scripted episode. The Giants episode has usurped that title. But there's a lot of Tywin, some Cersei, a lot of Ares, and of course, Barristan and and Rhaegar. Good stuff in that one. Check that out if you haven't. Next week is part 18. Uh, I did a little little more alliteration with the titles this time. Tyrion 12, a cacophony of contracts, aka setting the stage for the second sons to switch sides. The Kingbreaker. The coup that killed Kroz, a.k.a. the eyes of Ashara Dane. The dragon tamer. The gang does not steal a dragon, a.k.a. the one with the burninating. And finally, John 11. <laughs> what? Uh, John 13. Yeah, of course. <laughs> 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 and finally, John 13. 
dark wings, pink words, aka the one with the stabbing. So the burninating and the stabbing. Big things popping next week. Part 18. Only seven chapters left. Four next week, three the week after. Then it's on to our wrap-up. Then it's on to T-Wow chapters. Then it's on to other things. It's not going to stop. Even though VRR is winding down, we have so much more content to go. And then when the winds drops, you know we're going to be all about so much funness there. So we've been through a lot, but the future is bright, my friends. It's not like Cersei's chapter where the shadow is blocking the sun. No, in fact, the sun shines bright as it always does on the future of this fandom. The only shadow you need is the shades of sunglasses. The future is so bright, we gotta wear shades. Yeah, 80s song reference, fitting. Uh, Thank you to everyone who came and watched live. We appreciate the support, uh, especially on a day like the Super Bowl when a lot of people are probably out partying. Hey, look, it's Xerxes. (laughs) Hanging out. Thanks to our History of Westeros mods for leading the discussion over on Facebook. You guys do a fantastic job with that, posting art, reposting our goofy titles that we make up in between episodes. Thanks also to any of you who participate over on Flick or Slack or Discord. Ashea has done some recent work on our Discord, adding some cool new roles. We got Tarth and Expanse stuff and Star Wars stuff. Fun things like that. And so you should check that out if you haven't. Not to mention the discussions that we have there. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the maps and the video intro. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the Valoritas music. Thanks to Joey Koval and or Joey Townsend, Jesse Koval for the regular music. I don't know how many times I've married Joey and Jesse together, <laughs> but many. Thanks to the Benjineer for the sound quality. Thanks to all of you who have signed up to be a patron, to support us financially. As I said, we're in the slow time, so this is a great time to step up with some support and get the bonus content and all that fun stuff. If you are so able, check out the Here Be Dragons. They are covering The Expanse. And so is Ashea on Monday covering the finale of season five, which was so good. Uh, We love The Expanse over here in these parts. I am very close to starting a reread. It's a bit of a commitment. There's eight books with a ninth on the way and plus a bunch of short stories. It's a worthwhile commitment. But it is a worthwhile commitment. I'm probably going to start it once the ninth book is announced. That'll probably, that's, that seems like a good milestone, a good way to kick it off. So if you are also reading The Expanse uh, or starting it because you love the show and want to find out what else happens, well, that's another reason to join our Discord where we have discussions about The Expanse, both books and show. But without any further chatter, I'll say goodbye. Till next week. Valar, we read us.